and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm um, feeling uh, a little patriotic. Today. Oh, all right. Uh, really over this past week, um, because I, I did what, um, like most, uh, I think the term is red-blooded American males. All right. I watched the Super Bowl. All right. Um, although actually, uh, you know, most people don't watch the Super Bowl, right? Like, is that true? It's this is. I was reading. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the AV Club. Okay. Uh, AVclub.com. We had the TV editor Todd Vanderwerf on the show uh, a couple months back. Um, but this guy John Tetty has this uh, um, a football, a weekly football column during the football season, and he pointed out that yes, the Super Bowl is for like four years in a row now record setting in terms of TV viewership. But it's still less than half of the people who are watching TV. Yeah. Are watch- so that does not even counting the people who aren't watching TV. So most Americans don't watch the Super Bowl. Uh, but <laughs> I, I just I just wanted to point out, it feels like everyone does sometimes. I did not watch the Super Bowl. Um, good for you. But uh, you know what I you did, did do? Not, you did not miss anything. It was not a good game. <laughs> so I hear. Uh, <laughs> well, you missed that opening play with the, 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 the blown uh, uh, snap was... Worth it's worth watching on YouTube because it's funny. If I'm sure, if you're a Denver fan, it's not funny. It's probably very painful, but it's a little funny. Yeah, I, uh, you know, because I used to live in Denver, so I'm Facebook friends with a lot of uh-huh. a lot of people that I knew back in in Denver, and just the it was like it's like a second Holocaust happened. I mean, people were so, and it was such an odd thing I, i'm speaking about the super bowl having not watched any of it Ever. um no except, super bowls <laughs> except what that's kind of true in fact the, the only super bowl i think i've ever watched was in 97 the first time the broncos won and then they won again the next year but anyway um so uh but yeah it was so fascinating that people it wasn't merely that they were upset that their team was losing they quickly became very angry at the people that they were in favor of, that they were fans of. And but they weren't showing up. But here's the thing. Are they not showing up or is it just they're against a better team? Like what what can you do know. if I, you're I, against a better team? I can't talk about football as eloquently as – I can't talk about any sports that eloquently. eloquently but I know hockey a little better. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. This is like – has nothing to do with what we talk about on the show. But I understand why football is – because football is such a taxing game, yes. that's why they only play one a week, and that's why the elimination, the you know, it's a one and done elimination tournament. This the the the, uh, the football playoffs. Uh, uh, but the problem is, the problem with that is, if a team has a bad game, yeah, that's it, they're out. You know, whereas in in hockey, you you know, in the Stanley Cup Finals, you've got seven games. Yeah. If you have a bad game, you get it back. Yeah, you know, it it, it tends to work out that. The deserving team tends to win more often in a situation like that. So um, it could be a situation where the Broncos show up in the Super Bowl and they're like, ha ha, okay, I don't know how this happened. <laughs> I think we got lucky. I think, I don't know, some guy on the other side like tripped over his shoelaces or something and we wound up here and uh, facing an actual deserving team. No, I'm saying the Broncos, I felt the Broncos were going to win going into the weekend. Really? That's what okay. I'm saying. Um but they had a bad game, and because because that's it, you get one game. There's one Super Bowl. It's not yeah. a series. That's it. Yeah, man. Anyway, oh man, that's not the point. What? I, uh, what? And that's not what made me feel patriotic. Okay. 
would make me feel patriotic. Okay, now here's another thing. Because I because I am who I am, which is a snobby. And that's all that you are. Uh, yeah, um, a snobby, insufferable, pompous prig. Um, all right. I generally you got them all. Yeah, I don't. I don't watch Super Bowl commercials, and I don't just not watch Super Bowl commercials. I like almost make a point of not watching Super Bowl commercials. I'm a little less loud about it on Twitter than I used to be. Mm-hmm. I still don't let a Super Bowl go by without commenting on. Um, how much I disapprove of commercials because it, and it's not. I, you know, I you're the I, only one, and re- you're the only person that tweets from our Twitter account. Like you have to represent both of us. No, I, you do the same with the Facebook. I don't like monitor what you say on Facebook. Oh, you should. I, I don't. Care. <laughs> I am misrepresenting you a lot. Um, no, I mean I, I have a tendency to. I when I do the Twitter, I think I don't say anything that Tyler would like be, you know morally or philosophically opposed to it's true uh and also i think i think that most people who follow me know follow at the pretension know that david is the one tweeting that's from true. the account so i think i think that's pretty clear um well according be- to facebook you endorsed mike huckabee for president in 2016 <laughs> so just throwing that out there uh that might not be okay with me, but, <laughs> but like if I say something about a movie, like a like if I say how much I loved Frozen, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, which I did, mm-hmm. I saw it, uh, this past week. Um, now you didn't like Frozen, no. but I don't feel like I don't think you have an opposition to me expressing that I like Frozen. No, it's on fine. Twitter, yeah. Whereas, yeah, if I said something uh, that you might politically disagree with, um, then. Uh, which I'm not going to try and come up with something right now yeah. uh, because we'll get into a thing, then I, you know, that will be another thing, which is why I wanted to talk about this. Um, I did mention it on, I I watched this commercial in late, like days later after hearing about. Yeah. There was some controversy, the controversy, this, this Coke, uh, ad. And I tweeted that I liked it. Um, I think I said that shit was awesome. Uh, uh, and then, so that's part of why I thinking why I was thinking, this is a politically divisive thing. Maybe I should see if Tyler feels the same way. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if you do feel that the shit was awesome, but you are not opposed to that commercial, uh, as we talked about beforehand. No, it's and here's the thing. So when you're uh, politically conservative, as I am, uh, it's you find yourself, as I was a few weeks ago, regarding uh, Glenn Beck's reaction to Amy's mm-hmm. review of uh, Lone Survivor, uh, you often find yourself in the middle of things because... Uh, <clears throat> Or sometimes Sorry, can I stop you. Yeah, go ahead. Speaking of reviews of Lone Survivor, okay. Did you see someone left a comment on my review of Lone Survivor on BattleshipRetention.com? Yeah, saying he was the editor of Lone Survivor. Oh, okay. Like he put Colby Parker Jr. editor, and that's the name of the guy who edited the Lone Survivor. And all he said was that my review was careless. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> like he didn't say it was bad, but he said, "What a careless review." Colby Parker Jr. editor. And I but I had made specific mention praising the editing of the film and mentioned Colby Parker Jr. by name in my review. So is that so just someone fucking with us? Or did the did the editor of Lone Survivor like follow a Google alert for his name, read my review, deem it careless, uh set up an account and I'll tell you one comment thing. Under I, that name. I am not sleeping tonight. Uh <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on now. I don't like it. 
one way or another. Um, what do you think he means by careless? I don't know. Now is not the time to talk about it. It's not. We're talking about this ad. Oh, I thought I, did, I, I thought this was a show where we went off on tangents. I not today because I have to record another episode That's of right, my own show after to this. Get to. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and so uh, so I often do find myself kind of in the minority uh, of the uh, politically conservative when it comes to certain things. Um, but in this case, uh, it does seem to be split uh, half and half. Uh, there are people that were frustrated by it, uh, specifically its use of – for those that d- – can you describe? Yeah, the- it's, so it starts off um, with shots of sort of the uh, a rural area, the prairie, mm-hmm. you know, cowboy hats, pickup trucks. Yeah. and uh, Flyover country. I hate that. I know you do. Um, uh, and a voice singing uh, the song America the Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there it goes into, I think the next one is a different voice singing it in Spanish. And you're seeing, mm. uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Latin American Americans. I don't know that they're necessarily Mexican Americans. That's where my mind tends to go because it's the closest Latin American country. Fair enough. But, um, you know, Spanish speaking Americans. And then I think you see, um, I, I'm not sure if it's Arabic, uh, but you see uh, you know, people in that sort of traditional garb right. uh, and another language uh, in the song. And then at one point you see uh, a gay couple with their daughter uh, mm-hmm. roller skating. And it's sort of, uh, to me, it's about the idea that I was taught growing up, which is not either a conservative or liberal idea, mm-hmm. which is that America is the great melting pot. Right. And that, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're, that our our culture grows as it absorbs uh, more and we're better for our diversity. And I don't think that's, like I said, that's not a conservative or liberal ideal ideal to me. To my knowledge, a lot of people, I'm sure there are people who had a problem with the gay couple, but whatever, I don't. Um, but I know some people had a problem with the fact that, a lot, that it was not all in English. Not that they are xenophobic or afraid of other cultures in and of themselves, but and this is not necessarily where I land, but um, this idea that, you know, like you're coming here because this is where you want to be and we want you to be here. But there is something but there's a combination of as we absorb your culture, you are also in theory absorbing ours. And that includes, for example, learning the ling- the language that, for example, the Constitution was written in. Right. But we don't have a national language we don't. Uh, in the U.S. And I don't think of it as we're welcoming them into our culture because we're America. I think the point that I got. <laughs> we from don't it, have much culture. Uh, <laughs> no, no. The point I got. And by the way, what I meant to say is uh, this. The ad was directed by John Hillcote, uh, film director and Australian. Australian. Um, also a nation of immigrants. And that's the point to me is not that we the, um, you know, the the I guess anglo or or white european you know uh settlers who came here you know a long time ago are absorbing them it's that we're all absorbing one another we're all again this is because we came here and genocided the native americans to use uh, maria bamford's uh, <laughs> uh verb word of yeah hadn't hadn't heard it like that before um <laughs> because we did that um uh then all we have is a culture of immigrant cultures mm-hmm. everyone every culture in Amer- in the u.s except for the native americans is came from somewhere else and found its roots here mm-hmm. and just because uh the i guess english-speaking um uh fair-skinned cultures have been here 
longer than some of the other ones doesn't in the grand scheme of things in the sort of like carl sagan plotting you know the history oh. of the earth out on a calendar okay. it's milliseconds between like when we got here and when 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 they got here so uh the idea that the idea that any one of those cultures, except for the Native American culture, is in a position of primacy to welcome in the other cultures, that's that really rubs me the wrong way. And that's, I feel, exactly what that ad was addressing. Is, is It isn't about uh, English-speaking Americans throwing open their arms and welcoming other people in. It's about America, the land of opportunity, welcoming all of us in. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it. You've now pushed me in the other direction. Uh, because here, <laughs> now... Because now my question is, uh, don't get me wrong, uh, oddly enough, okay, this is definitely a, co- a topic for maybe never on the uh-huh. show. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, in the last, ever since I was a kid, I was always bothered, as people should be, bothered by like the, the treatment of Native Americans uh, in the past and that sort of thing. But for some reason, like in the last year, it has really gotten to me. I don't know why. I find myself thinking about it a lot. Um, is take, because- take that for what it's worth. Maybe it's because you saw the movie The Act of Killing, which... Sure, uh, you know what, maybe. You know, like, we look at, but I only saw that fairly recently. Yeah, but I mean, we look at The Act of Killing and say, these people committed genocide, and 30 years later, they're still heroes, they never paid for it. Isn't that horrible? Mm-hmm. Except, that's exactly what we did. Like, we never paid for the sins of what we did to the Native Americans because we stayed in charge the whole time. I like to think Custer paid for all of our sins. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Custer's kind of the Jesus Christ of America. Right. <laughs> Vain, pompous Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Played by uh, Gary, uh, Gary Cole uh, oh. in a, in a uh, TV miniseries. But anyway. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, and so it is one of those things. So while I actually do have a surprising amount of heart for the uh, plight Sur- of the Native American. Surprising something- because you're a conservative? <laughs> surprising because I, why now right, right, in my life? Right. Like why what, – what was it about age 31 that made me be like, you know what? Uh-huh. One of my favorite lines in, in About Schmidt is like, they got a – those guys got a raw deal. <laughs> Just a raw deal. Like it's, it's delivered perfectly. But anyway. Um, but no, it's uh, – but what I will say is that the idea of this being the land of opportunity, like from a governmental standpoint, from the idea of a system, a system of organization, a system of go- uh, governance and that sort of thing, like that was set up by a very specific – whether we like it or not, and I'm not sure I do, uh-huh. um, you know, like that – like America as we know it now, the idea of it being a melting pot – I would venture to say the Native Americans were not thrilled with that idea, but it was. But the people who founded Amer- the United States of America, they were thrilled with the idea of a melting pot of not favoring one thing or over another, which is why I think they would be fine with the ad. Mm-hmm. But it's this idea of like of you know we like we can't be ashamed of everything because in the midst of our shame, we're actually saying like oh we have the right to be ashamed of our government because of our government mm-hmm. because of the government being set up, and that's a so. It's something that I kind of really like about it is that uh, that you and I can bitch about it and talk about the evils of it, of 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 the of American history. Yeah. And they actually set it up for that. You and I talked about this uh, right around the time of the election. I think that like it's it's or there are movies that I think we did it. We did an episode about like movies about America and we both talked about like, you know, we may have our differences about, you know, uh, you know, the the execution of. The Constitution oh. and of, you know, criminals in Texas, obviously. Um, but uh, that's actually you and I are on the same page on that one. But uh, 
but like we may have our our difference of opinion about how the constitution is executed but in our it, when it comes to the fundamentals of the country you and i are on the same page mm-hmm. and so i don't remember so when i say you push me in the opposite direction not not really because right. i still like the ad and i think what the ad is saying is a good thing i found it to be very touching when i finally watched it and of mm-hmm. course i like yourself i watched it knowing there was a lot of controversy yeah. and then yeah. i see i'm like what's the problem here like we can't be offended at everything yeah if you're offended at everything then you're going to be devastated when something actually offensive comes along and so like <laughs> yeah so yeah well, apparently there's a that was a 60 second ad there's a 90 second version of that that's going to air at some point during the oh, olympics nice. as well 90 seconds seems like too long to me now. <laughs> like, I only know that song is fairly short. Look, they could be saying the same lines over and over again. I don't speak any of those languages. <laughs> it could go on for as long as it wants. <laughs> my preference, by the way, as far as patriotic songs, my preference is always Irving Berlin, Berlin's God Bless America. I think it's amazing. Okay. Uh, but we should move on. What else happened? Yeah. Well, on- I, I was, uh, John Hillcoat did a great job. He did. And, you know, he's a director that uh, when you told me it was him, because I didn't know when you told me it was him, I was surprised because uh, I've only seen two of his films. One of them I loved. It was my favorite movie that year and one of my favorite movies of all time. The other I thought was good. And that was it. But either proposition in the road. Right. And then you saw Lawless, which you you didn't like at all. I didn't like Lawless. Yeah. And I actually I still haven't seen the proposition. I'll lend it to you. I think it's currently on top. But um, but it's great. It's a beautiful, wonderful film. But I'll say this. Uh, a fairly drab director. So when you see this <laughs> inspirational film, you're just right. like, but that's the thing. is maybe the thing that made him want to make the proposition, which is an Australian Western, Western being mm-hmm. first and foremost an American genre, but it works really well when you transplant it to Australia. Mm-hmm. And so maybe or to he- space, as we learned in Firefly. Fair enough. Yes. Uh, frontiers. It's all about frontiers. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, so perhaps he feels a certain kinship with America, which is why maybe he was exactly the right person to direct that commercial. Okay. Um, let's talk about tweakedaudio.com. Let's do. Um, let's get into the real topic here. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, I'm calling you out, Tweaked. How did you feel about the Coke commercial? You have to tell us. Yeah. <laughs> um, it might cost you, uh, uh, you know, some some sales, but... John Hillcoat in America and Battleship Retention demands that you uh, come down, that you choose a side on this issue. You've been silent far too long. Uh, I want to know the political bent of every single business that has ever existed or ever will exist. Because how else can I, or how else can I know whether or not I support you? Yeah. They have to, when when people file for a business license from now on, they have to take one of those, like, uh, One of those t- I think you you took one on Facebook the other day. Yeah, like an online quiz saying like, "Hey, where do you fall on the political and spectrum?" I fall one step to the left of Milton Friedman. Like, but I'm exactly <laughs> in the same spot. Uh, I took that too. I was pretty happy with where it said I was. Where were you? Was, uh, economically liberal and socially libertarian. Oh, okay. That's where I was. All right. Um, so you probably weren't super far away from me, actually. Uh, I think, well, you're more on the economically conservative side, but you right, were also... but we were both below that line. We were, yeah, we're both on the libertarian side. Yeah. Um, anyway, what was I going to say? Tweakedaudio.com is how we got onto this. Uh, that's where you, that's your Obviously. home. <laughs> that's your home for, um, just, just vitriolic, uh, political polemics, <laughs> uh, <laughs> charged language. There's the, the screeds you'll read over at tweakedaudio.com. Fight your way through those 
and uh, check out their selection of professional quality uh, earbuds in a variety of uh, really happening styles and colors. And uh, uh, they're already at a low, low price. But if you go to tweakedaudio.com, that's T-W-E-A-K-E-D audio.com slash pretension, you'll get those same earbuds uh, for thirty uh, for one third off, and you don't have to pay any shipping charges. David, let me tell you a little story about Tweaked Audio. Okay. All right. On Sunday... Uh, Super Bowl Sunday? Super Bowl Sunday. I was at the uh, the gym. I walked in. The Super Bowl was on, and uh, it's not unusual at my gym for uh, for things to be playing on large screens. But usually the volume is off, mm-hmm. and to listen to it, you will have to plug in a pair of headphones and tune to that station. Uh, but in this case, they just assumed that if you're at the gym, you want to see the Super Bowl. Yeah. Obviously, why, why else would you be at the gym? During the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, hopefully my sarcasm is coming through. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, You're a fan of physical exertion. Obviously, yes. And sweat. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I will say this, that uh, apparently they assumed correctly because the exercise bikes it seemed to be where most people were congregating and they were they were just all facing these TVs. And so it's like... Just like so the oppor- strolling. <laughs> yeah, the opportunity to sit... And yet still say that you're exercising. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so yeah, I was, so I sat down on my exercise bike a little bit further away from the others. The others are more of like, you can actually recline. Mine was more of an actual bike. And then there's the, then I moved on to the elliptical. But anyway, uh, so I wanted to drown out the Super Bowl, specifically the halftime show, because to my knowledge, I'm not a fan of Bruno Mars. Um, yeah, t- uh, that's how or, I feel about it. To yeah. my knowledge, I, I, I yeah. don't really know any of the songs, <laughs> yeah. but I am very decidedly and vocally not a fan of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That one song from Coneheads aside, I agree with you. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, and so it's like, well, I'm going to listen to uh, this latest Never Not Funny st- uh, featuring uh, Joe Latrulio. That's what I'm going to listen to. It's like, but man, they really have the volume cranked up loud. I'll tell you what. Put on the old tweaked audio earbuds. Did the trick turned up my uh, my iPod that drowned it right out there was nothing leaking into my ears from the Super Bowl I heard never not funny it's a quality product that I use blue yeah. is the color I'm using right now huh you're welcome Bruce <laughs> but you know what thank you <laughs> yes thank you and you're welcome okay um, we've had a lot of fun bullshitting around so far uh, but um, w- let's get into it shall we w- we want to talk about something that's not so fun um you may have noticed, um, if you keep up with these sort of things, that the no- the number of this episode is uh, 360. Uh, and so if you're an astute and long-time, astute and or long-time listener, I'll say, uh, you know that when an episode of Battleship Retention has a number that ends in zero but is not divisible by 50, it's a profile episode mm-hmm. in which we pick someone's career Uh and and profile it and i was i was all set i didn't even tell you this i was all set to suggest based on a listener suggestion that we profile an editor i was all set to suggest that we uh profile the career of walter murch why not Uh, why not the guy that did prisoners or wait no lone survivor why not that (laughs) guy parker jr yeah yeah do a nice careless episode about that (laughs) um anyway um so uh, I was also to suggest we do Walter Merch, and I think maybe when we get to episode three seventy, maybe we should do Walter Merch. Sure, we haven't done an editor. He's kind of the big one. Have you read the Blink of an Eye? No, 
I will say this. Have we never done an editor, really? I don't think so. Um, I will say this. I'm a big proponent of the sort of separation, like the separation of church and state, the separation of those who are critics and those who are makers. Um, and I know other people cross that line and have done so well, but I, my philosophy is that they are essentially two different schools of thought. Mm-hmm. That said, Walter Murch's The Blink of an Eye should be, which is a movie about how to edit, a book about how to edit movies, should be read by anyone who cares about movies. It's hmm. fascinating. It's a very short read. Uh, and I suggest we all read it uh, before episode 370 when we profile Walter Murch. Anyway, uh, I was also... And to- tell you, a listener, if you haven't read it, we'll push it to 380. <laughs> it's, like I said, it's a really short book. You could read it in a day. Fair enough. Um, so I was all set to suggest that when uh, on Super Bowl Sunday... Um, we heard that Philip Seymour Hoffman had died. Yeah. Uh, and it just seemed sort of natural to say, let's take this opportunity to uh, reflect on that and reflect on his career and celebrate uh, how great he was. Because yeah. he was, I don't need to, I feel like I don't need to make a case up front for why Philip Seymour Hoffman was a great actor. Anyone who's seen a, a movie that he's in... um knows he's a great actor. I don't know, maybe Twister didn't really I'm not uh, you know but you know what I feature him that well. But. I had dinner with a friend recently who said that they loved him in Twister and so it's like we've mm. all got our our thing. I actually I haven't seen that one in a long time. Uh, I've Jen watches it fairly frequently and uh, I can attest that it's not my favorite performance of his. I'll put it out put that out there. It's in the top 3 obviously. But uh being sarcastic i i it's i don't blame him i blame the way the character is written i think he plays the character as written i still want to kill that character but um but yeah and uh yeah and i don't necessarily want to reflect too much on on how sad it is obviously it is sad it is a, it is a sad thing in a number of ways um sort of as what as happened when james gandolfini passed away um and i thought how unfortunate artistically but then you know but then you realize well we know people who know him and this is a there's a specific type of sad day for him you know like when pat healy came on and like he was friends with james gandolfini and so That's right. uh living out here has i think i said at the time has caused me to realize that these people yes they are you know they make wonderful contributions to the world of art and film but they are still people with family and friends. And yes, Hollywood and movies in general lost something big when Philip Seymour Hoffman passed away. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry to name drop. So did Gordy Hoffman, someone we know who was on right. the show. And and then you realize like Philip Seymour Hoffman, like as much as as sad as it is that Holly that we've lost his performances, like Phelps and Hoffman had three kids who lost a father. Like it's a very, it's very, very sad and tragic in a number of ways. And, uh, and I don't want to necessarily say that because like really focus on that because a lot of people already have. So, but I just want to say that like, I don't know. It's sad in other ways than merely artistic. Yeah. There's, there's more to mourn than the fact that they might have to reshoot or recast his role in the Hunger Games right, movies. Right. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I mean, I, uh, on the one hand, that uh, almost seems like it could go without saying, but I also think it's worth saying. Yeah, and it's and that's the thing. There is a there is a there's a timelessness to film. Like film will, movies will last longer than anybody that knew or was related to Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like 
you know, Humphrey Bogart could seem like somebody that is very present in your life because he, you, maybe you watched a movie that he was in just last week. Like there is a way, there is a certain degree of immortality through art. Uh, and so that's good. And so focusing on artistic contribution is not necessarily a bad thing, but recognizing that here and now there are people that are genuinely like as sad as I am that he has passed away. And I am, there are people that are genuinely devastated by his loss, like from a, on a personal, uh, level, but anyway, okay. But yeah, we want to talk about his career and his, uh, his craft and we're going to, we're going to go, we can't talk about everything because he was in a lot of, right. A lot, a lot of movies. And I have seen a lot of them. Uh, and so there's a lot of early roles. The earliest one that I was planning on talking about was hard eight. Is that, did you have anything before that that you wanted to mention? I saw him in his law and order episode in 1991, which is, I believe is the first thing on his IMDb. It looks like it is. Yeah. And, uh, I remember it was the, I believe it's the first or second season of law and order. He is one of a few people that I think is accused of, uh, rape, and he does a very good job. And, and so I'll throw out uh, Law and Order. He was also in Scent of a Woman um, in 1992. And he played the very, the, a very similar type of character, which is uh, – and you'd, and you'd see him in Heart 8 as this kind of thing. This obnoxious, really confident, like overbearingly mm-hmm. confident type of person. Not the type of character that, you, that we would come to think of him as. But very much the type of character he played early on. Yes. In a lot of early roles. Yes. So, yeah, Hard Eight, or as I guess the the true PTA files call it, Sydney. Yeah. Um, now, does he only have the one scene? I only, it's been forever since I've seen it. I think it's just the one scene. I think right? it's just the one scene, yes, where he's just obnoxious and he's got like a mullet and he's. Man, he just. The, the the character is meant to be just funny and obnoxious and all that, but like he just freaking lights up the screen. Yeah, but he's in just a, way a gambler. You, I mean, yeah, you hate him because he's this like oh. he, uh, this yeah uh, snide braggart and like yeah uh, yeah his whole thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you till I light the cigarette to place your bed or whatever. I'm gonna light the cigarette. I'm lighting it. I'm lighting the cigarette. <laughs> uh, but it did like uh, he would go on to work obviously with Paul Thomas Anderson um, more. Uh, um, even as quickly as the next year, but uh, that that was the movie that I think, uh, in, in a lot of ways, made. Uh, I don't know. I was pretty young at the time, but I, I I think he probably got a lot of attention for that one scene. Yeah, I um, think so. Among, like, among other filmmakers, because he would go on to be sort of one of the favorite actors of a number of different filmmakers. Very much so, and it is. Uh... And I did see him in Nobody's Fool with Paul Newman in 1994, but I saw that so long ago that I can't really speak to his performance. He plays, he, and I, to go back uh, to, you know, Heart Eight and Scent of a Woman and stuff, he just, he plays a character that you kind of actively root against. He's just, but not in a villainous type of way, like in Mission Impossible 3, which we'll get to in a while. Um, yeah. But, uh, but the kind, just like this, little runty guy that you're just not not that he's a runty guy he's an imposing physical presence but like just kind of this whiny privileged entitled type of person and he plays a like a a young cop in nobody's fool and he's sort of the uh sort of the wily coyote to uh paul newman's roadrunner in that um and so it's just interesting how that started to switch over um and it was probably boogie I, i i would say it was probably boogie nights that changed the way people 
change the type of roles he could be cast in. Um, but it wouldn't change it for, I mean, he's, he still would play, um, yeah, there are the, not, not that we want to be reductive about it, but there are the sad sack Philip Seymour Hoffman roles and there are the, uh, obnoxiously overconfident Philip Seymour Hoffman roles. And he, he never quit playing either one of them. Right. And in fact, in, this is jumping way ahead, but in maybe my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, which is Charlie Wilson's War, he's essentially both of those characters. But we'll get to that movie later. Well, that do, that does bring up something. Do you want to talk so, about Boogie Nights? Well, I was just going to say, oh. like, favorite performance. I'm having a hard time. Like, you, you say Charlie Wilson's War. You say that pretty definitively. Uh, there's another one we're going to talk about real soon, actually, that is a, a, a contender. Okay. Fairly soon. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I would say the 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 go to for me, even though it's far 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 from the best movie of his career. Right, Charlie Wilson's War is essentially it's a it's a pretty good movie. It's yeah. not great. Um, it's sort of pacing is weird. It like finally gets a good like head of steam under itself just and then as it, it's and then wrapping it's done. up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 definitely problematic. But as a collection of scenes and as a really fantastic performance, yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, we'll get back to Charlie Wilson's War. Yeah. Uh, Boogie Nights, now, I've seen it once. It was more than 10 years ago, and I didn't like it very much. Okay. So maybe you should be the one to talk about Boogie Nights. I've seen it a couple a couple of times, and, and his character... There are a lot of tragic characters in that film, um, but his... You know, the, people are very quick to say that Boogie Nights, you know, it's this sort of makeshift family, and it is indeed that. But it's also, you know, depending on what your opinion of... of you know, porn is and and the role that it plays and the potential damage that it can do to a person uh, emotionally. Um, You know, the nature of what these characters do is pretty vulnerable, you know, like Mm -hmm. everything's just out there uh, a lot of the time. And so, you know, when it, when characters find themselves getting emotionally wrapped up in that only to find that, Oh, that's, it's not that. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a, there's a tragedy in that, and and I think his character is is a, a really great example of it. In that he, you know, he's just a, a you know this kind of I'm this I, I promise this will be the last time I use the word schlubby. Uh, he's this kind of well. I'm gonna hold you to that. It will be implied. How about that? <laughs> uh, but he's just this kind of schlubby guy. Like he's not like a very attractive guy, but he's very much in love with Dirk Diggler, like, and he just, and the two of them, like, you know, get along as, as friends and stuff. And then he puts himself out there, which is, you know, emotionally, which so many of these characters have been doing physically only to be, you know, not even like violently rebuffed by Dirk Diggler, but more just like, no, I'm sorry. That's, that's not, I'm sorry. That's not what this is. And just the sadness. And then he sits in his car and he just calls himself an idiot. And it's so, so heartbreaking. Um, and it's, but that's the thing is the character is so often seen as kind of not an object of ridicule, but you know, at, like so many other characters in the film, just kind of humorous at times, mm-hmm. partially because we so know, we know so much of what, what he is, like what he may be trying to hide, but ever it's obvious to everyone except maybe Dirk Diggler, apparently. Um, but then in that moment, it's just so, it's so raw and it's, uh, and he does, you know, he does exactly what the character needs him to do, which is he's funny when he needs to be funny and he's deathly serious when he needs to be. Um, uh, yeah. Um, that when well, you mentioned him being ridiculed and there, there are a lot of movies where he like in heart eight, 
um, or in the next one, I think we're going to talk about is Big Lebowski. Yeah. Um, he is there either to be hated, to focus like the hatred, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, to, to, to represent, uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm letting the cat out of the bag on uh, something else that we're going to get to here. So, uh, or, or to be ridiculed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and Brandt in The Big Lebowski is a, is a hilarious character. I but forget that's Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's, it's very much different, uh, different look for him. Yeah. And he's speaking in a different uh, cadence, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's a bit, actually a bit more than how he looks. I think the way that he talks in that movie is yeah. different than what we expect. Uh, yeah. I don't think him. he would return to that cadence again until the master. <laughs> right, <laughs> so. Yes. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, Brandt is not like the dude doesn't take Brandt seriously and we're not supposed to either. No. Really, you know, uh, I think there is some humanity to him because, um, the Coens, for as much as they get dinged for making fun of their characters, they do create full characters yeah. in almost every, everyone, and in just the way that he's playing him. You know, his uh, his, his discomfort around Tara Reid yeah. uh, is, it's hilarious. And just kind that of laugh laughable. immediately. Yeah. Just <laughs> but it's very, it's also like something you can sympathize with, I think. Oh, Absolutely. And just and the fact that she knows this, knowing full well, it makes him uncomfortable. But one of the other things is that I mean, he the character is first and foremost like a PR guy, which means he needs to be the good face uh-huh. of Jeffrey Lebowski. So, for example, big the big Lebowski uh-huh. calls the dude Mister Lebowski. That's Brant calls him dude because that's uh-huh. what he prefers to be called, and he will and he tries to be <laughs> as accommodating as possible. And you get the impression like he's not that bad a guy, really. Right, yeah. Uh, it's he just has the unfortunate distinction of being this kind of toady type, yeah. Uh, and and he does it brilliantly. Uh, well, okay. Speaking of him bringing sympathy to ridiculous or uh, characters that could be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That you could deride, maybe. Sure. Uh, Todd Solondz is a great person to team up with for for that. So. Uh, did you did you see Happiness? Did you ever see? That? I haven't seen it in a long time. I remember him in it, and just thinking. I mean, so many characters in that could be seen as just objects of pity. Um, and that's the thing. Like they're the character. Uh, most of the characters in that movie are uh, characters who, in any other movie, would be someone you would would mock or look down on, or just uh, hate, or just hate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the movie is about. Uh, imbuing them with uh, sympathy and humanity, recognizing that a pedophile is a person and yeah. that the guy who makes these uh, harassing uh, obscene phone calls is a person. Yeah, it's that is a movie that can make you very emotionally uncomfortable because the film is not saying that the that just because this pedophile is a person, uh, it's like, well, so obviously he should be forgiven of these terrible things he's done. Right. It's just saying. Yeah, it's a person like yourself, like me. Like, yeah. I like any movie that acknowledges that, uh, to put in the words of Noah Cross, most people don't have to face the fact that in the right circumstances, they're capable of anything. Um, and so... Uh, That's, and it's why I've always felt that the best... Uh, we talked last week about the movie Only God Forgives mm-hmm. and how the best villains are the ones where you can see where they're coming from. Oh, yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, uh, Todd Silence is very good at that. Yeah, and yeah, the portrait of of loneliness in in Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance in 
happiness is very palpable. And then, and you, and you see like, I feel like a person can only be lonely for so long before a certain degree of desperation sets in. Um, because either that or a very sad acceptance of their situation. And so, uh, but he plays, and, and this is a character who the desperation has set in because he doesn't want to be this. He wants to connect with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so the desperation, you know, uh, reveals itself in, in a very uh, unseemly and I would not say immoral way because it is harassing other people and that sort of thing. Um, but it's, uh, but it's still very human. I feel like he always brings a, a, a humanity to his characters. What are you smiling about over there? Uh, I'm thinking a couple movies ahead. Sorry. Oh, okay. I looked down at what's to come. Okay. Um, uh, but I want to talk real quick before we move on. Okay. Well, okay. I don't have anything to say about Patch Adams. I do. Okay. Which is... Uh, because, not, not because I... Uh, that's not me saying anything bad about his performance. It's that I don't have a great memory for movies that I didn't like, and I didn't like Patch Adams, and I don't remember Philip Seymour Hoffman being in it. Mm, you got to cultivate a memory for movies you don't like, especially when that movie is Patch Adams, because it's all it's important that we all remember how bad Patch Adams is. And when I saw it at he, the time... Spoilers, he gets killed at the end, right? Patch Adams? What? Does Patch Adams die at the end of Patch Adams? No. No. no Doesn't someone get killed? Yeah, he starts dating this girl, and she... And I remember Roger Ebert's review. It's like, she shows up a little too late in the film that you realize, well, what purpose does she serve oh she needs to die so, so that she, he has she doesn't just like die like doesn't someone get murdered in the movie i don't remember is there a murder or an attempted murder isn't there like a patient who comes back and is stalking him i know i'm getting confused with the sixth sense but i feel like there's <laughs> something like that in patch adams uh that i don't remember what i do remember very uh fervently fervently can you remember something fervently Clearly. I'll just say clearly. I don't know. What I remember very the clearly... fervent makes me think of ravenous and... Uh, fervent. <laughs> um, the, uh, the exchanges between Philip Seymour Hoffman and the debates between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Robin Williams. And I know this was not the point of view of the filmmaker, but I agreed with Philip Seymour Hoffman, I'm going to say 95% of the time. <laughs> uh, and it, maybe it was because of the... <laughs> It's like part of me is like, well, I think the character has a better written, ar- a better argument on paper. Uh, but then also, like he could have played this character as, well, he's an asshole. I'm going to play him as an asshole. No, he plays him as a guy who came into this, came into medical school with a clear idea of how things should be, because that's how they are, <laughs> and he's defending that. And by the way, that is not the worst thing in the world. Wanting to be a doctor who just wants to save a patient's life is not the worst thing in the world. Sorry that I can't make him laugh while I'm doing it. It's a really and and he sells that character like while Robin Williams is doing everything his character everything he can to make his character not human, uh Philip Seymour Hoffman is doing everything he can to make his character as human as possible. So I respond to him emotionally way more than I do the character of Patch Adams. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, exercise in clearly this character is meant to be seen by the audience a certain way. And I don't think he's trying to subvert that, but I think he's trying to say like, well, just because he's that doesn't mean he's not a person. And so he he winds up making it making maybe the most relatable character in the film. This is what happens when we do these profiles is we start to find themes. Yeah. And so this idea of humanizing the 
the bad guy yeah. is something that uh, will come up uh, again and again. Yeah. But I want to mention a movie that we're not, that's not like that at all. It's actually not a very good movie at all. Um, it's called Flawless. It's directed by Joel Schumacher. It's yeah, ridiculous. I never, I never saw it partially. But he's fantastic in it. I'm sure he is, yeah. I I watched a couple of like video tributes to him, and I saw a scene where he's talking about like the, the different plays that he's been a part of like in high school and stuff. And he looked great. And it's, I had heard such bad things about the movie. It's not a good movie. And it, the place where, where like it starts, it, it's a the stupid premise is that this like, uh, um, Robert De Niro plays like a, either a cop or an ex cop. Who's like, you know, set in his ways and, right. uh, you know, not very open-minded. And somehow he ends up taking singing lessons from a drag queen. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very ridiculous, but the drag queen is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. But then it gets to the where it's like this thriller, like at the end where they're like hiding from the bad guys, and like there's like a shootout on a like fire escape. It's ridiculous. It's so it's a really stupid movie. Damn it, Schumacher! It's yeah, it's exactly what the kind of movie that Joel Schumacher likes to make. Um, but he's fantastic in it. It's a yeah. it, it, it's a performance uh, that. Uh, I, I I don't know. I'd have to go back and watch it because I, I don't know that the character is supposed to be have any tendencies toward being transgender, or if this is a gay man who does drag for, right. um, uh, you know, a nightclub appearances or, or what. But um, he is playing someone who is um, not necessarily always himself in his own skin. You know, he has his own personas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, uh, I'm not going to name any names, but among, like, lesser actors, there's a tendency to sort of play up those, like, shifts or, you know, overly, you know, like, just just really hammer, like, uh, this is, uh, this is me out of the makeup and this is me in the makeup. Right. uh, Like, but what Philip Seymour Hoffman does is he creates a person... 100% 100% a person uh, that you see between all the different, uh, you know, different stages of makeup or stages of uh, being in drag as being the same person. And also the kind of person that, as ridiculous as the movie is, you believe exists when the camera's not on. Yeah. Uh, I know that's like an old and trite way of talking about a performance, but I think it when it's right, it's right. It, it, things are a cliche for a reason, and I think that one uh, is uh, – it applies here. Yeah, you know, it's and you, and you bring up something that obviously can apply to almost any uh, to any performance he does, which is I mean, you and I talk about his humanity just shining through in everything. Uh and I think what comes with that is a believability no matter what he is doing. Like he could be doing something completely off the wall ridiculous or really small and it will have the same level of believability mm-hmm. and it could be in a bad movie with wh- where unbelievable things happen, but you believe him like I, he exists. Part of that we've, we've talked about his, his, his voice and, and the way he talks and stuff. But, um, as a physical actor, mm-hmm. I think he's both very, he's unconventional looking. Yeah. Uh, but is someone who is almost a prodigy at, uh, or was almost, I keep I'm still saying in the present tense, uh, but was almost a, a prodigy at behaving in front of a camera, mm-hmm. you know, which is, uh, I think, 
it's a specific subcategory of what acting is. Yeah. You know, knowing how you come across uh, on a on a camera, you know, and on a on a screen later down the line. Uh and um flawless is a physical performance, not just because of the like, you know, uh the fire escape shootout. But uh, <laughs> uh but he is someone who uh, in this role talks with his hands a lot uh, which mm-hmm. is actually something you'll see come up in a lot of his movies hmm. um I, I think because i also watched a lot of clips this this week and he was a uh, he had a tendency to use his hands yeah. uh, as he as he talked um and i'm not i'm not reducing his physical pre- presence to that but uh he could you know um let's go back to say uh happiness or no, let's go back to Boogie Nights. Okay. You talked about um, forgetting that Brandt is Big Lebowski. And a lot of that is just in the way he stands. I, 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 do you know what I mean? Like, the, or, or the way he oh, walks. Oh, sorry. You said Big Lebowski. I think you mean Philip Seymour Hoffman. What did I say? You said, you forget that Brandt is Big Lebowski. <laughs> it's like, it's like you forget you, that Brandt, I think what I did is I, you forget that Brandt is Philip Seymour Hoffman and Big Lebowski. Right. I skipped. Okay. I do that because I was already thinking of my next point. Yeah. Either that or you interpreted the plot of that movie <laughs> yeah. in a way I didn't foresee. Um, anyway, uh, it's just in the way that he carries himself. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, it, that's that that's uh, that's a specific skill, I guess, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, I guess again, I feel like I'm coming up with a lot of trite things because there's only so many ways you can say he was amazing. Yeah. But uh Acting is more than just the way you say the words. It's becoming the person, and that's something he did. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, get to that in 2005. Okay, well, let's talk about... Um, why don't you talk about Magnolia? Because, again, it's been even longer since I've seen Magnolia than it has been since Boogie Nights, and I, again, didn't like it when I first saw it. You know, I'm, I'm almost inclined to go year by year in some cases. Because in 1999, he was in Magnolia and The Talented Mr. Ripley, and I think he was wonderful in both. Well, when I said before that there was another challenger for favorite role of all time, okay. it's Talented Mr. Ripley. Favorite okay. Philip Seymour Hoffman role. It's him in The Talented Mr. Ripley. Okay. Uh, so, okay, well, I'll talk about Magnolia, then I'll throw it to you. Uh, Magnolia, yeah, it's – and there's not – okay. He is the type of actor that you can either say very little or a whole lot. Uh, you can either say, he's amazing – or you can go into a whole lot of detail about little choices that he's making. But like, you know, his character is talking, it spends a lot of time with Jason Robards and then a, a, a crazy Julianne Moore and then a crazy Tom Cruise and then a bunch of dogs. <laughs> All right. That's who he spends his time with. And at one point, doesn't he talk to Paul F. Tompkins on the, on the phone? I believe he does. Yes. Um, so have it, you heard that story? I have. Yes. And I think it's amazing. Um, <laughs> it's on Paul Tompkins most recent CD, which is called laboring under delusions. I yes. think he tells the story of being in Magnolia. It's very funny. <laughs> Definitely worth checking out on, on AST records. Um, so given all that, it would have been easy and just the nature of the film, it would have been easy for his character who actually plays things. who's pretty down to earth. It would have been easy for him to be swallowed up. But he's not, partially because I think the character is very well written and is allowed scenes where he can shine. Specifically one where he is on the phone pleading with somebody, saying, like, I hate to be the guy in the movie who's, like, 
you know, pleading with someone about, oh, somebody on their deathbed, but this, this is that scene mm-hmm. and I am that guy. And it's like, and there's a, that, that's, that's fairly self-conscious dialogue, um, that could be viewed as meta, but I believe this character would say it. And I, I believe he is so, so desperate to, to go above and beyond in what, in his job that he just, he'll make any plea he can. And it's such a, it's such a beautiful moment. And then his scenes with Tom Cruise are amazing. Uh, specifically like he's trying to make this situation happen while also trying to navigate the very difficult emotions of other people and himself. And it's just uh, like there, I feel like there's a, that's a movie where there's, you know, a couple dozen uh, characters. Many of them are kind of uh, outsized. Uh, But there are like, there are a couple characters that I would venture to say are the heart and soul and maybe even conscience of the film. I think John C. Riley and I think Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, and he and he wears it very very well. Okay, um, talented Mr. Ripley. The thing I want to talk about because uh, we've talked about him serving the character uh, and 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 respecting all aspects of the character, but um, his role as uh, Freddie Freddie Miles in Talented Mr. Ripley is uh, it's the definitive sort of supporting performance in that. Uh, he is not. He is serving the character he's playing, Freddie Miles. He's making him a full character, but he also recognizes that he's serving that 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 character is serving the plot and the story. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons. And the, and the setting. Uh, well, yeah, the, I think that, but I think that's one of the reasons he ended up being such a good villain in Mission Impossible Three, which we'll get to okay. uh, later, because he recognized. I don't think Philip Seymour Hoffman was ever so full of himself that he would. Um, disrespect the story that was being told, right? Uh, and, and so. Uh, Freddie Miles, okay, like the characters on and, and Happiness on paper, uh, Tom Ripley is the bad guy. He's clearly the bad guy, yeah. but he's also here the hero of the story. So there needs to be someone that you hate more than you hate Tom, mm-hmm. and that's what Freddie Miles is there for. Yeah, to <clears throat> to be uh, awful, um, but he is also there to represent. Again, this is a supporting performance. He represents a part of Tom's psyche, a part of tom that knows he's a fraud yeah. and knows that he could be figured out that that he might be able to 85 percent of the time trick dicky greenleaf mm-hmm. but he can't trick freddie ever freddie is the guy who sees through all his horse shit and doesn't have any sympathy for him at all just dismisses him out of hand is he, he's his greatest fear yeah it's it's such a fascinating character because he seems so he's almost like Marge Gunderson. <laughs> he seems so in okay, he seems one way but in fact there's much more to him. Uh in his in her case is that she seems naive uh-huh. and way too trusting, but you see underneath that she's actually a damn good detective and all that. And in his case, he seems so vapid and like unable to see beyond himself. Uh-huh. or his money that it's interesting. Yeah. Not many people catch on to Tom Ripley. Uh-huh. Freddie got has him from the word go, maybe for entirely uh, superficial reasons. Like I know money when I see it and you're yeah. not money. <laughs> yeah. You know, it could be that, but for whatever it is like, and just, just by virtue of the character being smart and being observant, you have a certain degree of sympathy for him while also hating him and just recognizing not sympathy for him, 
but just like an admiration for him. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like I, I, I thought this guy was too drunk all the time uh, to, to notice anything. But in fact, he's, he's studying things all the time, man. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. That one I've watched fairly recently and I, I, I would like to watch again and again. It's an amazing movie. It really is. Yeah. And the thing, and we talked about this just recently, how, uh, with when Josh Long was on about mm-hmm. how much he hates the English patient yeah. and Anthony Minghella has made some real stinkers in yeah. his career, but, uh, he's, uh, always got the talent in Mr. Ripley. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I had, here's one going through, you know, going through his career, there are certain movies I look at his IMDb that I'd forgotten he was in. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten he was a huge part of, like State and Maine. Yeah, he's the main character. He's the main character in the State and Maine. And I think part of that is, we'll get to Capote, to Capote when we get to it, but I think um, in the last, you know, the better part of the last decade of his career, he he got a little bit away from playing every man. Right. You know, and I think... Capote might have had like the attention he got for his performances. Capote might have been a part of why he got cast in specifically like almost exclusively larger than life roles. Yeah. Um, when before he had done a mix of the two state and Maine, he is the everyman in that movie. He's the audience yeah. surrogate. Uh, he's the one, he's the only person in the movie who's not larger than life and crazy. Yeah. And, and he's, and one thing that I do want to mention. Okay. So we got Paul Thomas Anderson Cohen brothers. Now we have David Mamet. We've got Spike Lee, but more specifically like people that are known as good, interesting, if not good and very distinct writers and his ability to pull off Cohen's PT Anderson mm-hmm. and David Mamet yeah. and Aaron Sorkin. Like yeah, we'll get to that. it's worth noting. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, he's, like he manages because he's kind of the you're right he, he's the everyman and he's kind of the straight man as well but he has a line i laugh every time i think about it which is there's a little farce thing going on where there's a woman in his room <laughs> and this is not the woman he is attracted to but she is coming on to him and so uh but then the woman that he is attracted to walks in and so he pushes the woman he's not attracted to into the bathroom and she's naked and uh and so his, the love interest has some flowers that she wants to put in some water. Uh-huh. And she's like, she goes, she goes, oh, I need to put these in, in, into some water. And then she walks over, she walks towards the bathroom and he goes, wait, 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 what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> and then she goes, going to the, going to the water to get some bathroom. Uh, sorry, going to the bathroom to get some water. And he goes, for God's sake, Why? <laughs> And it's that for God's sake, why, but rushing through the, for God's sake, it's so first off, it's very mammoth, but he gets it. Like he understands exactly how to make that line. One could say a fairly innocuous, a line that doesn't have to be funny. Mm -hmm. And he makes it to me like, that is the, that is like the line. There are a couple lines I remember from that film. And that is one of them solely because of his delivery. I can't wait till we get to Charlie Wilson's War so we can talk about delivery. Um, Man, I'm finding I feel like I'm being a real dick because we keep coming on these movies that I don't don't like. Well, but uh, Cameron Crowe, Almost Famous, is a movie that I have never never liked. Uh, There's good stuff in it, and he's good in it. Is he? Uh, he's good in it, but is the I don't like the character. I don't like any of the characters. They all 
stand for things like yeah. they're, they're like you know they're not none of them feel like characters and i feel like the things that lester bangs has to say are so clearly just cameron crow saying these things that even philip seymour hoffman couldn't make me believe that that's a real person i think what he i agree with you almost famous is not a movie that i love but i enjoy it there are things about it i like i really like francis mcdormand um and uh but yeah, you're right. Like people are people represent things more than actually are things, um, and uh, and his character is is one of them. And so in this case, like he's given a lot of like, for lack of a better term, well, I'll say well written, well written platitudes um, and philosophies more than actual dialogue. And so in that instance, what you need to be able to do is motivate. Why is this character? who certainly is not a big-time celebrity or anything, but he has better things to do than talk to this kid. So why is he doing it? And I absolutely believe that Lester Bangs, as played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, sees himself in Patrick Fugit's character and really wants to encourage this kid, like, look, I, I thought the way you did, and I maybe let it define me a little bit too much. I, you, you don't have to be like this. And but it's like this really loving type of thing. And it's just it's very much a mentor sort of thing. Uh, and I bought that. Uh, I think he sells the dialogue as well as anybody can. And I think it is well written. But it's not it's well hard to explain. It's not well written dialogue, but it's well written stuff. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. It just feels like when he talks about essentially how cool it is to be uncool it just feels like cameron crow masturbating to me. <laughs> yeah especially because cameron crow is pretty cool uh in a lot of ways but uh but yeah. Wait, is that a joke cameron crow is not very cool is he well he he has created some movies that right. people yes. think are pretty cool that's how you get to be that's how an uncool person gets to be exactly cool. yes uh he won right. an oscar for that didn't he for I screenplay i, I think he did true? I like it more than I, I you, but I but I never liked it as much as as I wanted to. Um, what should we say about Love Liza? Because we talked about it when Gordy Hoffman was on yeah. the show. Well, yeah, we did, and so I would encourage people to go back and and listen to that episode just because Gordy's a lot of fun and and he he wrote the film. Uh, yeah, what I'll just I'll, I'll briefly just mention like that's a movie that deals with tragedy by way of comedy, and this goes to what we were talking about. Like he's able to play both. Mm-hmm. and bring it together as as feasibly one character he can play the he can we can laugh at this guy and then cry at his situation all at the same time uh now by the way 2002 you wanted to go by year was love liza punch drunk love red dragon which i didn't see and the 25th hour yeah all in one year did it you was, see red dragon i did is he good he is good. He plays uh, the Stephen Lang character, Stephen Lang character from Manhunter, um, Freddie playing Lowndes. Freddie Lowndes, a sle- just this sleazy tabloid guy. But he plays him as like vaguely, vaguely self hating. Like again, just characters not in it very much. Uh, you know, I enjoy Stephen Lang. Uh, sorry, Stephen Lang played Freddie Lowndes. I enjoy Stephen Lang as an actor. But if you watch Manhunter, like everything about him is like, yeah, I'm sleazy and I like being sleazy. What do you think? <laughs> you know, whereas like Philip Seymour Hoffman plays him as a guy who maybe wanted to be a reporter at one point, And this is as close as he got. Uh, and it's a it's a really it's a surprisingly a good performance. 
Um, uh, not surpri- not surprisingly good, but like given Red Dragon, directed by Brett Ratner. Um, <laughs> now you've seen a couple episodes of NBC's Hannibal, Brian Fuller's Hannibal, yeah. where they turned Freddie Lowndes into a lady. Yeah, uh, I think that's a neat idea. And and they but they did more than just that because instead of like what she does is sleazy, but um, she is a supremely confident person to the way to the point that it's it's admirable. <laughs> Uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, uh, it's also going to be really satisfying when, uh, if and when they the decide, tooth fairy, yeah, uh, does what the tooth fairy does. Yeah, okay. Um, Punch drunk love. Uh, that's when in going through and watching YouTube clips over the past uh, week. This is what the him yelling. Yeah, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut, 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 shut up. <laughs> shut up like he does it one more time and there's the brilliance and i it, maybe that's written maybe it's not it could go either way on that one yeah um yeah he's he's amazing and there's not much there's not a whole lot to the character but it's just a man and he, he finds a way to be genuinely genuinely threatening but also like undoubtedly small time yeah yeah and little things like when he's getting his hair cut and just <laughs> and like when the woman like pulls his hair, he goes, ow, and just does that. <laughs> and then when he raises his hand to shut somebody up, he raises it underneath the little tarp thing that they put on you when you get your hair cut. <laughs> he doesn't bother to get his hand out from under it. So all you see is the little thing just go up. It's like, shut up. And he just does this thing. And it's just, his instincts are so sharp in yeah. that movie. We haven't talked about, we've talked about comedic roles. We haven't talked about how funny he is or was. Yeah. Um, uh, again, we'll get to Charlie Wilson's war. Yeah. I feel like I'm overselling it now. I like Charlie. I like him the, Charlie you can't oversell that character. But um, uh, in but in Big Lebowski, in Love Liza, in a lot of these things, even in Happiness, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of humor, and yeah. he uh, he was a naturally funny actor. Um, and and again, like in everything else he did, like uh, being the drag queen in Flawless, he never telegraphed any of of the jokes. You know, the character, the mattress man. Uh, I'm, apparently his name is Dean Trumbull. Dean Trumbull. I don't remember that. I remember him being the mattress man. Yeah. Um, is, uh, he's never trying to be funny. He's funny because he's just ridiculous, but ridiculously human. Uh, now, um, I mentioned the f- four roles in 2002, the last one being the 25th hour, but mm-hmm. we should also mention how varied those roles are are uh oh yeah you know although uh i guess there are some similarities between jacob in 25th hour and uh wilson and love liza in the sort of uh introverted sadness uh yeah of of the character but um uh uh i don't know i don't know what to say love liza actually you know i don't want to spoil anything but um there's some there's some self-loathing in the 25th hour as well yeah uh and that's something that going back to you know happiness and uh some other things that uh is a through line in a lot of his characters Yeah. yeah and you know i mean the word you know he does he he often could play uh you know the the quote unquote sad sack characters, but it often came about because, you know, his, his physicality, cause like he was a big guy, not conventionally handsome. Uh, and 
so be, like he could play characters who are conceivably like alone for a reason like and not for lack of trying like they had girlfriends and it just didn't work out and they just and it just and every every rejection every breakup just hits them a little bit harder until they have absolutely no confidence uh and and that's very palpable in 25th hour where it's this guy who it, that and this won't I, I feel like this won't come into play too much in some of his later roles but just this this feeling of like i want to be happy and i want to be with someone and why why don't like it's the it's like he plays characters right on the cusp of like i deserve this why am i not getting it to maybe i don't actually deserve it mm-hmm. he's he's always kind of in the not always like when the character needs it like in happiness like in 25th hour just kind of just teetering right on the brink there going back and forth between the two and he hangs out with a character like Barry Pepper. Yeah. Like Barry Pepper's character. Almost, I think, as a sort of like... Uh, this goes back to that self-hatred. Like, I'm going to hang out with someone who's who can be kind of a dick. Yeah. Because I maybe deserve it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's a hint of that in there. Um, do you want to move on to Owning Mahoney? And do you want to talk about it? Because, again, I feel like I'm being a dick. I never liked this movie. Um, but I know you did. Yeah, uh, I. But I think because you like the lead performance so well, which oh, I yeah. can't fault you for. I just never liked how, um, how heavy the movie leans on the sort of production design and costuming and hair and stuff. Uh, seemed to. Well, it takes place in casinos. <laughs> it just seemed like it was trying, trying a little too hard. Maybe, uh, and I would. I, there's an argument to be made for that, but his performance is, it's maybe among my favorite of his uh, because it's very unlike what he does because while he often does play kind of the, the sad sack sort of thing, his characters are usually are still talkative and usually still show emotion. He plays, is it Dan Mahoney? I don't remember, but Mahoney or is it? Yes, it's Dan. Okay. So he plays Dan Mahoney, this guy who just like works for a bank and has a horrible gambling addiction. Um, and I will say this, that like, you know, a lot of people, when Philip Seymour Hoffman died the way he died, a lot of people pointed to the devil knows you're dead. I looked at owning Mahoney yeah. um, because <clears throat> that's a movie very much about the character's addiction. Like it's a great movie about addiction and specifically that this guy is just sitting like at a craps table or whatever it is, just sitting and just focusing so intently on what's happening. And you feel like, is he enjoying this? He doesn't seem to be enjoying this. Why does he keep doing it? Mm -hmm. And just, and then later on towards the end of the film, when he's like in therapy uh, for his gambling addiction, and he said, and the the therapist says, like on a scale of one to a hundred, like where, uh, as far as excitement, like where would you rate gambling? Like he barely gets out the G in gambling before he just goes a hundred. Like he just <laughs> says it so matter of fact, and that's when you realize, like this is, like the nature of addiction is feeling like you have to do this, but not necessarily taking any joy in it. Um, just the like the only way to maybe feel alive, but just because you feel like you're alive doesn't mean you're having fun in the traditional sense. And so like, 
uh, and I think people, I, I've, I think I've read somewhere that that's like one of the definitions of, of addiction is continuing this thing to diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just keep, and just the fact that he's just so focused on things like he's, he's focused because it's the one thing he has. He has other things, but it's the one thing he has that can give him any joy, especially because later on in that same scene, the, the therapist asks like, well, what about everything else? And he goes, eh, 20. <laughs> and it's a, it's, it's a nice scene and he plays it. There's a humor in it, but there's a very sad humor in it. And just, and it's such a, it's a very, it's just a very quiet, intense character. And I'll say this, like the movie itself is, I think fine. If you want a good Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, yes, you can look at, I would say, well over a dozen, uh, but this should be in there. Like, people don't know about it. You got to see it for the, for his performance. Uh, you know, I'm really glad we stopped to talk about Owning Mahoney in light of the question of addiction, which I hadn't really considered. Mm-hmm. But there's been, in the wake of his death, there's been... I don't know. Mark Maron talked about it on his podcast. Aaron Sorkin has said, uh, yeah. uh, wrote a thing. There's been a lot of talk about the nature of addiction, and I think uh, it's worth pointing out. Yeah, because his character is doing something that he objectively knows to be wrong. He is stealing money mm-hmm. from his bank, to and he's and he's losing it. He knows in so many the fact that he has to hide it. First off, <laughs> he knows that it's legally wrong. That he could he could go he could get fired go to jail but also he knows that it's morally wrong and at the end like when he finds it like oh other people are actually getting fired because of this thing like he knows that it's wrong all the way down the line but he keeps doing it you know like that is and as you know people who struggle with like drugs or you know sex addiction or you know any or or anything like they know that what they're doing or is at the at least for them very wrong they don't really want to do this but there is that feeling of they have to do it i'm sorry i didn't emphasize that enough that's fine um i don't have much to say about cold mountain i don't really remember the movie that well he's he's you know it's it's basically the odyssey and he's in it for a short time playing a uh, lecherous uh reverend and he it's an over-the-top type of character and he plays it all the way down the line and and he's a lot of fun he he really i'm not a big fan of that movie um but he does give it some much needed life um did you ever see along came polly i did i did not but i have watched that um (laughs) philip seymour hoffman makes an entrance uh youtube video (laughs) where it's just him falling for 10 minutes straight have you ever watched that i haven't seen that but i know but that you know it's when he walks in and he slips on the dance floor yeah you can look Search YouTube for Philip Seymour Hoffman makes an entrance. Someone took that like six second clip for ten minutes, and it's it's it like it's one of those things like it's hilarious. It gets funnier. It gets funnier. It stops being funny. You're watching it. It's kind of experimental and disturbing and kind of upsetting, and then it starts to get funny again. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and he plays a you know in the midst of this bullshit. Who who cares comedy? Uh, his character who is like a a former child actor and still has certain desires to be that but also has a certain delusions like he's he there's a character who is viewed as kind of pathetic like pathetically funny and worthy of ridicule but he's given genuine uh humorous things to say and that fall is one of the 
funniest pratfalls I've ever seen. It looks Did genuinely you? painful, but not so painful that I'm not laughing yeah. my ass off. And it took me by surprise. <laughs> like, Jen and I watched... Because well, he walks in like Freddie Miles. <laughs> like... <laughs> Full of confidence. I've only yeah. seen this is the only clip of this movie I've seen ever. But he walks in full of swagger and confidence, yeah. and it's the second <laughs> his foot touches the dance floor, he goes down like a ton of bricks. It's unbelievable. It's, it is hilarious. I watched it. I, I rented that movie with Jen back when we were dating. You know, back in Chicago, and and we just thought like, yeah, what the hell, you know, like, and so we just watched that. That part, you don't see it coming. Uh-huh. It's like. It's like Marvin's death in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> you don't see... It's telegraphed a little. That one's even telegraphed a little yeah. bit. This one, it's just like, holy shit. <laughs> First off, it's not necessary, but there it is, and it's so brilliant. Like, so what happens after that? Like, I don't totally recall. Because I feel like all I'd be doing is laughing for the next yeah. minute. Yeah, least. I might not be able to tell you exactly what happened because I might have been laughing so hard. It's not unheard of that I might have actually gone back and rewinded it, oh, or yeah. rewound it immediately. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. He doesn't, he didn't do a lot of like physical comedy, but that, that makes up for any physical comedy he didn't do in his career. Um, he did all the physical comedy in that. Uh, are we skipping ahead to Capote? There's a couple things here. I never saw the Strangers of the Candy movie. I did. And he's, he's just a, it's kind of a a bit part and he's funny in it. Okay. I did see Empire Falls. I did too. And I I don't remember remember much, but I don't like it very much. Me either. I don't remember much about the, the miniseries in general. It's got Ed Harris in it. Yeah. Paul Newman. Um, I remember it not being very good. Yes. Okay. Capote. All right. You wanted to talk about Capote. Yes. Because you talked about. I don't remember how you, which film you were talking about, but that, you know, a character is more than merely how he says something. Right. All right. So I want to talk, talk about Capote in relation to the movie that won best actor the year before, which was Ray. You look at Ray, you look at, at Capote, both in both cases, they're about a guy, a, a, a real person who had very clear and distinct mannerisms and a clear way of speaking, moving, and and uh, thinking. And I feel like Jamie Foxx is doing a really good impression of Ray Charles in Ray. And I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is Truman Capote. And I think it's because he started from the inside and worked his way out. Right. I, I would venture to say he, like... If you were to strip away all the mannerisms and the very distinct way that Truman Capote had of speaking, if you were to strip all that away, I think emotionally it would be the same performance. And I feel like that's key. Approaching him first as why is he doing this and what, if, what impact is it having on him? Oh, and I guess he, I guess he talks kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and it's yeah. just – and I think like there's, like, there's a reason – you know, one can make the argument that he probably would have won Best Actor either way, but I mean, there's so much more to that. And I, I I'm sorry to crap on on Jamie Fox because oddly enough, I, I'm not a big fan of Ray, and I and I and I think his performance is merely fine. I think he was way better in Collateral, a movie that I know you're not a big fan of, but I think he's really great. In oh, it. he's great in that. Yeah, um, my not being a big fan of it has nothing to do with Jamie Fox. He's yeah. great in that movie. Um, but like, so Jamie Fox is capable of being a really good actor. Uh, but 
I think he saw it as because that's the thing he's he comes from comedy and in comedy you need to sort of give a general as as like the more specific impression you can do the potentially funnier it could be or the more either way the more effective it could be and I think he focused on that first whereas somebody who comes I think primarily from acting will say okay what who is the character why is he doing this. Mm-hmm. now okay i've got that now funny. what the the funny voice isn't just him doing an impression of truman capote you get why he might talk like that which is yeah. um sort of like we talked about his uh character in i forget his name already in uh 25th hour um you know feeling a certain way about himself and then surrounding himself with people who are confident and larger than life yeah um truman capote also like growing up a weirdo uh and not fitting in um he took a different tack and sort of embraced it and like yeah so the way he talked might have been a bit of an affectation but it was also a bit of self-empowerment for him yeah. to be like this is this is who i am uh and and making it very apparent what is the movie that came out the next year in- infamous that's the one with uh, with Toby Jones. Yeah, which I never saw actually. Uh, it's not a very good movie. Ah. His performance is great, but what I will say is that he understood. He understood like, oh, this is the movie we're making. We are not making a soulful exploration of Truman Capote. Right. Uh, we are taught. We are emphasizing the glamour and silliness, even in the midst of a, a very deep story. Um, and so, and he tailored his performance appropriately. So, like Toby Jones is is very very good, uh, as is uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. But like you know, I'm sure some would say that oh, he only won because Cap- Truman Capote had this way of speaking and he was a real guy and all that. It's like yes, possibly. That doesn't mean he didn't deserve to win. Right. Okay, let's move on. We've already uh, teased it a couple times to Mission Impossible Three. Uh, which I think even at the time, uh, it, it, both in retrospect and at the time, it seemed weird that he was playing the villain in a Mission Impossible movie. Uh, but um, that doesn't uh, the fact that it's an unconventional choice for him doesn't make it any less of a of a great performance. Uh, oh, absolutely! It's and and they were right to in the promotion of the film. Uh, really play up just how coldly evil his character uh-huh. is. Like he's got that horrifying monologue about like, you know, do you have a wife, a girlfriend? It's like, wherever she is, I'm going to find, find her and I'm going to hurt her. Uh-huh. He doesn't say kill. <laughs> right, yeah. He says hurt her. And then he goes through this list of things he's going to do. He says, and then I'm going to kill you in front of her. Like, it's just this man. It is like cold as ice. And and he knows exactly how to play it. And this goes to, well, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about. Like, he knows the movie he's in. He doesn't need to imbue this character with a lot of humanity. Not that, And there's not much there in the first place. You get lines like that. It's like, all right, well, there's only so much I can imbue this character with. But, like, um, he seems like a, uh, like a fully formed villain. He seems like he seems very formidable. But, you know, it's mission impossible but he might as well be a james bond villain like he wants power he wants money he wants power and he will do anything he can to get it he -hmm. has a clear idea of who this character is and he plays him to the hilt and he is like there's a reason that a lot of people when uh after the dark knight came out and people were saying okay well who are going to be who will be the villain in the next christopher nolan film and a lot of people said he should have played the penguin 
Now, I am of the opinion that though he would have been wonderful, should have been, obviously Paul Giamatti plays the penguin. There's no, <laughs> there's no question about it. But uh, well, now but Paul Giamatti is getting his great supervillain role as Rhino in the Amazing Spider-Man Two. Turn off the night. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so it's, is that what it's not turn off the night? Is it? No, it's turn off the dark. Turn off the dark. That's the one. I yes. Like, turn on the night it's like a bob seger song uh okay do you like bob seger uh i like him a little bit more than i used to i think okay. i think i sort of uh wrapped him up in a package and dismissed him at a, as, as, at a young age as uh a sort of uh you know wannabe springsteen or yeah. whatever and now that like a midwestern springsteen yeah but now like Okay, we've talked about this before, and, and I might be mispronouncing because I'm not like a big pro wrestling fan. Okay, but there's a ter- there's a term that I've talked about on the show before in regards to like uh, horror and heavy metal and stuff. There's a term I think it's pronounced kayfabe. Oh, okay. The, it's the idea of how much the wrestler is buying into, you know, selling or or being a part of the ridiculousness of yeah. it uh you know and i think if you sort of look at bob seger's bob segerness as kind of a heightened performance uh it's a lot easier to uh is that actually what it is though i don't know but i think it like looking at it that way he's a he's a much better lyricist than i thought he was fair when enough he was younger okay uh so basically, you've you've adopted a coping mechanism for Bob Seger, and it has really <laughs> yeah. helped. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, fair it. enough. Okay. So back to uh, I think we're done with Mission Impossible Three. Yeah. Uh, Two thousand seven. What a great year. great years. Uh, the Savages before the Devil Knows You're Dead and Charlie Wilson's War. Which of those three, Charlie Wilson's War, doesn't feel like it was as long ago as the other two to me. I don't know why. Maybe because I watch it more often. Maybe uh, I've yeah. seen the other two once each. And uh, it might be because. Uh, I think that's the that's the film and that's the performance that I think a lot of people will cite as their favorite or the most fun or whatever. Uh, there, he's doing, he's wonderful in all three. There's no question yeah. about it. Let's start with the savages. Yeah, because um, that's uh, in in some ways that's more of an everyman or not an everyman because he's not. I don't think, but he is less of a heightened character. Than yeah, he, he seems like a real person. Yeah. But uh, he's still, um, he's got an outsized ego, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, he's, um, there's a lot of comparisons that can be made, made perhaps, between uh, his character in The Savages and his character in Synecdoche, New York, mm-hmm. uh, in in terms of, uh, you know, striving artists who may or may not be as talented as their uh, ambitions mm-hmm. uh, imagine themselves to be. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you have to say? Yeah, it's, uh, in the savages. Okay. So, all right. So you and I have both lost people in our lives and it is a very sad thing. And we've both had people in our lives that have gotten sick and are, I'm sorry to use so callous a term, clearly on their way out. And it is a very sad thing to, to Mm -hmm. deal with. Um, one of the things I like about the savages is that it's, you know, it's about this adult brother and sister who are dealing with their father who is, who has, I think Alzheimer's, right. And, and is getting worse and they have to take care of him while also dealing with their own shit. And 
first of all, it's a wonderful screenplay um, and just a really wonderful film all around. We'll talk more about that in a, another episode in the future. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah. And so um, that was cryptic because you're going to have to pay for it. Everybody. That's right. I for- so I um, forgot until just now what you were referring to. Yeah. That's right. So, uh, Although they're, come on, they're already paying for it. Like they're already paying for this, like emotionally, uh, listening to this show. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. And so what, so like Laura Linney got a lot of the press for the savages and she is, she, she's great. Everyone's great in that movie, but, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, his character tends to be a bit more angry and there's a very specifically, there's a scene that takes place in a parking lot. Do you think 2007 was sort of the point where. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman being great in a movie was unremarkable. You know, by that point, like maybe we didn't give him as much credit as he deserved because we just expected him to be so great. I've noticed this is something I've noticed with like, uh, I think in my review of the Iceman is something I said about Michael Shannon, that Michael Shannon being amazing in a movie isn't really enough to recommend the movie anymore because we all expect Michael Shannon to be amazing. In it. Uh, I think it's an instance where we, like we need to see something when it's somebody that is as great as, as a Philip Seymour Hoffman or a Michael Shannon, we want to see something new. We know it's going to be great, but we want to see something new. Now of the three movies in 2007, which one is the most new? I would say Charlie Wilson's war because Uh, the way we'll get to that one. Um, and so I think maybe that's the one that just got, all the press. Okay. Um, right. I see what you're saying. But, uh, but yeah, it was, and so, a big, it was a bigger release. It had Tom yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Julie Roberts in it. Yeah. And so, um, but there's a scene in the parking, in a parking lot where Philip Seymour Hoffman, just all the, all the anger and frustration that he has, not merely towards the fact that his dad is, is essentially dying, but also all the resentment that he has it like, well, my dad wasn't the greatest dad in the first place. Like now we have to take care of him. And it's just this, it's, I forget. Did I, did I bring this up in this? on this show, or maybe I just brought it up to you personally. But, um, there was a time when I, uh, Jen and I were going to, uh, marriage counseling and, uh, our counselor put this idea out there that I find fascinating and it's, he called it grieving the situation and it's just acknowledging. And when it comes, he talked about in, in reference to the other person it's the recognition that this other person's never going to be exactly what you need them to be. And they're not perfect. They're going to let you down. And and you should not have an expectation of perfection. But it is a sad thing. You know, um, it doesn't have to be devastating. And the sooner you accept it, the more gracious and forgiving you will be of the person you are married to. But uh, But that doesn't mean it's not a sad realization that like, oh, I was investing so much in this person. But even they can't give me the things that I feel like I may need. And so grieving – so in, he talked about in that very specific sense, grieving the situation. Um, but I've, I've started to think about it in other terms. And like his character is grieving the situation, which is I didn't have a great dad and now he's almost gone. I'm angry mm-hmm. and I have a right to be angry. There's not much I can do about it except to just do what is necessary now. And it's a really – it's a really moving, frustrated performance, uh, and the character has plenty of other frustrations as well, um, professionally, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just a, it's a really well, well-observed uh, performance, and it's one that 
that deserves to be revisited. Like like a like a uh, owning Mahoney. It's one that I think maybe has gotten swallowed up over the years, uh, but that's one that deserves to be uh, looked at again. Uh, well, speaking of moments of breaking down, uh, there's a mm-hmm. very memorable one in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead in uh, in a car, which uh, <clears throat> I think uh, it, it would have Oscar clip all over it if it weren't for the fact that it was Philip Zimmer Hoffman and that it had been played. It's, it comes at a time in the movie that we've already gotten to know the character. Yeah. Um, and so his, his breakdown isn't – it isn't uh, – what was the Jonathan Rosenbaum term that I kept using? Lightweight uplift. Hmm. Oh uh, yeah, it isn't that at all. Um, you're seeing a real person go through something very harrowing, and it's, um, in some ways, it is, it is cathartic in the way that we, that the most comfortable movies are. Yeah. Uh, but it's also it, it opens up as much new shit as it heals. Yeah, and you know, and I'll say it is. It could be an Oscar clip if the Oscars were different. Uh-huh. Uh, in the same way, this is going to sound strange. I remember somebody once dis- said that Tom Waits would be Bruce Springsteen if the United States was populated exclusively by circus freaks. Um, <laughs> and so it's just so like if the Oscars were a different thing, then his, then that performance would be like the, would have gotten major consideration um especially that scene but that's not the type of character that the oscars like to embrace because he is so petty like look at the expression on my face as i'm describing him <laughs> like i'm not doing this consciously yeah. he there's kind of you're kind of disgusted when no, you think very, about yeah, him he's, just, he's gross yeah. he's like there's just you don't like him and he's not the kind of guy that you like not liking you just don't like him you don't like spending time with him and in that moment it's very cathartic but it's also so petulant uh-huh. you know and it's just like oh i can't even i i can't even get behind the catharsis because it's of this little fucking weasel yeah you know yeah so I feel like the the Oscars tend not to embrace that sort of thing. I I, I love that movie, and that's one that's actually grown a lot. And not that I I never disliked it, but mm-hmm. I like it more the more I think about it. Uh, and the one thing I, uh, I I I don't know. I mean, um, it's such a cynical movie. Yeah. Uh, and it, it but but it's the fact that it's. I think I like cynical movies made by older directors, like say The Wolf of Wall Street. Yes, um, because I feel like they've they've earned that worldview. I mean, yeah. How old was Sidney Lumet when he made uh, Before the Devil Knows Your Dead? He's in his eighties. Yeah, uh, older than Martin Scorsese is yeah. uh, now. Um, this isn't like this isn't a cynicism that is the the posturing the, of a uh, you know uh, 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 of a of a young Turk new on the scene. Yeah, this. <laughs> This is some real, like, I've seen shit yeah. uh, type of movie. Um, that's, yeah, that's really fantastic and not particularly easy to watch. Yeah. What is easy to watch is Mike Nichols' Charlie Wilson's War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned a few minutes ago that it was the newest thing. But in some ways... At the time, it was the newest thing. But I, I don't know because it, almost, it, it is... Uh, he is both the larger than life characters that he played before and he is the everyman in mm-hmm. Charlie Wilson's war or he's the guy who still thinks of himself as the everyman he thinks of himself as a champion of 
an unspecified group of people that may exist only in his mind and never asked him to be their champion. Yeah. Uh, but he, uh, sort of a working, working class hero type. Right. But no one is asking for it. Right. No, but he, his, his sort of, uh, anger at, uh, waspiness and the sort of ruling class and, uh, in, uh, in government and in the CIA where he works, um, is, uh, it's, it's, it's not subtext at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll play. If, if we were to have a show that played clips, I would play this scene in its entirety. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite scene in Philip Seymour Hoffman's career. It is. I know that I, in some cases I can be prone to hyperbole, but I think it is the greatest character introduction in the history of cinema. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's first scene in Charlie Wilson's war, which, because I watched it a number of times this week, re- revisiting it. And I realized that if you, watch the that scene out of context you would never guess that's the first scene he's in right uh there's it's a weird way of introducing the character he's um being asked to apologize for something that has happened uh before the movie started yeah but it's it's treated as if it's something that we we're just dropped into the middle of this scene where he's been told that he's going to go to john slattery's office and be apologized to and john slattery's been told that he's gonna he's coming to apologize yeah uh, and so it's, it's a very Aaron Sorkin scene in the sense that it lays out this sort of, uh, I mean, it, it's, a, it's very clever, I guess, in an Aaron Sorkin way in that. A little too um, clever at times. Uh, I disagree. I don't think there's any moment. Uh, I think there's one moment that John Slattery plays a little wrong, but that's not. Water under the dam. Uh, no, that, I, I think he actually sells that. I uh, think. He sells it, but I hate it. Uh, Nobody would ever say that. Like, no, I don't care how wrong you get things. Nobody gets like water under the bridge. Everybody fucking knows it. Okay. That, that never bothered me. Um, anyway, but it's a very clever scene in that it, uh, gives you, uh, a lot of backstory, um, in a way that I think feels organic. And also it's clever in the sense that it tells you how it's going to end right at the beginning mm-hmm. in a way, if you watch it again, you yeah. know, he's in there to apologize because he told John Slater to go fuck himself and he broke the window of his office. Yeah. And that's exactly how he breaks the window of the office and he says, go fuck yourself. You fucking yeah. child at the end of the scene. But uh, if you play the scene backwards, it's exactly the same. <laughs> it's pretty much okay. And so, uh, in that way, the scene is a lot of fun. And there are a lot of scenes in Charlie Wilson's war that are a lot of fun yes. to watch. Um, but, uh, but he, 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 he inhabits that character so fully that, uh, the, the anger that he feels is, uh, it's not just fun. You, you feel it all the way down to his bones, I Mm -hmm. guess is what I'm saying. Uh, and what's great about this particular guy, this guy whose name is Gust, um, and, uh, what's, what can be great about Aaron Sorkin is that he's losing his shit. He's so angry, yeah. but he never stops being eloquent. In fact, he maybe becomes more eloquent, the angrier he gets. Yeah. Um, and that I think in the hands of a lesser actor, um, it, you can see the words on the page. Yes. Uh, and that's why Aaron Sorkin sometimes in the hands of lesser actors, uh, is really corny, but when it's done right, it, it really, really works. And the, I'm going to, I'm going to boil it all down to one line or one just clause in a line. He has, 
this speech about all the things he's done to earn the job, the post in, in Helsinki mm-hmm. and, um, all the reasons he's right for the job. Yeah. And he's listing them. He's like, you know, I did this in Greece. I helped the junta like, yeah. uh, take Papa Jerry prisoner. I've done this and, uh, you know, to the communist and I've done this and I spent three years learning Finnish, which should come in very handy, uh, in Virginia, here in Virginia. And then he says, and I'm never, ever sick at sea, which is the funniest line in the world, but only on repeat viewings. Do I really find it funny because it feels so natural when he says it, but on the page for him to like list all these things and end with, I'm never, ever sick at sea. And not just, I'm never sick at sea. I'm never, ever sick at sea. Well, I believe that's the, that's the lyric, right? For the song. I don't know the song you're talking about. Uh, I don't know the whole song, but it's like I think it's I think it's okay. uh, in there somewhere. See, now I'm embarrassed because I didn't know this was a reference to a song. I just thought it was a That's all right. That has become the Popeye the Sailor Man song. No, that's Oh no, not not Popeye the Sailor Man. It was a song in Alice in Wonderland. Um but yeah, uh so I think of it as the lyric that he's specifically quoting, but <laughs> it still, uh, was still funny. Oh, it's great. But it follows oddly enough. My favorite part of that scene is what is what comes right before it. The way he punches finish. <laughs> like, it's like I spent the last three years learning Finnish, and then he has this look of total incredulity on his <laughs> yeah. face. Like, are you kidding me? The most useless language <laughs> to know. Not French, not Spanish, right. not German. Like Finnish. There's only one place you speak it, yeah. and it's just it's such a and it's just a, a like volumes are spoken in the way he says the word Finnish. Uh-huh. Like it's just he it's it's like that line from State in Maine. He will find the core, whether it be dramatic, uh-huh. whether whether it's comedic. He will find the core and he will milk it without in a fairly effortless effortless yeah. way. Never ever sick at sea. Like it's <laughs> like whether he's quoting something or not. Which I have to if it's Aaron Sorkin, I have to assume he's quoting quoting it purposely. Um, it's probably Gilbert and Sullivan if it's Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> yeah, that that would not surprise me. Um, and so like him just like throwing that out there it just it all seems like and that's the thing is that always that has bothered me about Aaron Sorkin is there are times when he writes in a way that says hey everybody look I'm writing uh-huh. but the you get the right actor in there and it seems like it all just flows naturally out of this person mm-hmm. like the like what else would he say obviously never yeah. ever sick at sea <laughs> right. oh it's such a man uh, and there he's great like that's the scene everyone points to and rightfully so but the, there's the little uh, farcical scene where uh, yeah he bugged the scotch bottle yeah uh, yeah um, but I, I want to go back to that scene uh, mm-hmm. uh, for a second um, because uh, what it says about the character uh, is what I'm saying that it he's in a lot of ways he's as petty as he was in before the devil knows you're dead yeah but uh, he's got it dressed up in this like you said, a working class hero, you know, he's a, yeah. his, his, uh, indignance that, um, the Admiral Turner fired 3000 first and center, second generation American, uh, CIA employees is, it's not unfounded. Yeah. It's, you can't, it, it, you can't boil the character down to something as simple as, uh, he pretends to be angry about this, but he's actually angry at this. He is both things at the same time. Yeah. He is the, 
very knowledgeable and erudite spy, and he is the coarse middle class yeah. h- hard drinking you know uh slob at the same time well and also his character has a real sense of idealism and like wanting so desperately to make a difference and knowing how the difference can be made and knowing that there's just that it's the frustration of being like it's like I, i'm actually in the field and i have to deal with politicians are you sh- like and bureaucrats? Are you shitting me? There's one thing that will work. It's the most obvious thing in the world, and it's the one thing people don't want to do. And it's the it's it's that frustration that actually permeates the entire film. But um, but yeah, and so he winds up being kind of the uh, I've said it before in in other in uh, like Magnolia, like he winds up being kind of the conscience, the shabby shaggy dog conscience <laughs> of the film. Um, now, but he himself would never want to be reduced no certainly not. himself he thinks of himself uh as a pragmatist certainly but I, mean, I think the thing at least in the version of charlie wilson's war that's a better movie <laughs> uh tom hanks character julia roberts character and philip seymour Hoffman's character all think of themselves as the protagonist of the story yes and i don't think that comes through as much as it should um in the movie uh and maybe this is the a result of my having read the book and just knowing uh, yes. more about the people. But I will say this, um, as this is a credit both to Philip Zimmer Hoffman and to Aaron Sorkin, as over the top as Gus Avocados is, that's pretty much the way he is according to the book. That it's. Did you read the book? No, I, that, I have it, but I, everything he I was, heard, uh, yeah. from what I understand. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and there's also stuff that they didn't get into in the movie. The fact that he is, as much as he is a idealistic working class hero uh was not shy about racial epithets and reducing people to being you know what i like just some horrible word for an entire uh well you know know. he was on the front lines at a time in like the 80s (laughs) in the 70s and 80s like i've seen enough cop movies from the 70s to be like oh wow i guess i guess people just said this stuff (laughs) um all right uh we should Put the gas on a little bit here. Yeah. Um, but, okay, Snake to New York, another one that I didn't like very much. Yeah. Do you have anything we, to say about it? I kind of love it. Um, and I know that I know that uh, there are other people that love it as well, but it's like yeah, this – and that's the thing. This might be one where I, I love it for very specific reasons. Um, it's just the idea of somebody in this case – certainly Charlie Kaufman in this case, but like somebody – using art to really try because i've I've heard people say that art is just people's search for truth and i think synecdoche new york seems to be about that idea um and this guy using art to search for not necessarily a larger truth but a larger truth as it applies to him um and using you and i you and i've talked in the past about like specificity uh oddly enough can be very general Yes. And so he seems to be like, all right, well, what is my life about? And maybe if I figure this out, maybe then I'll understand everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, once you start doing that, then you realize, well, my life now is about me trying to figure out what my life is. So now I got to figure that out. And it just goes, you know, I'll I think I'll quote a line from Community like it's a, it just shoves, it just shoves itself up its own ass. Uh, and so like. I love the movie. I think it's amazing. And it's just, it's one of those things like once you start going down this rabbit hole, 
you need to go all the way. And I think the movie does go all the way and, but it will often lead to, I think, total insanity. Um, and, and I think Philip Seymour Hoffman, like he, I, I think, I think Charlie Kaufman is an intellectual without necessarily dealing with emotions which is why I think he often is best paired with people that are primarily emotional, like a Spike Jones. But, um, but he directed Synecdoche, New York. So like, uh Oh, there's nowhere to go. Uh, so that's why the casting is so imperative. And by casting Philip Seymour Hoffman, like he really, he got somebody who found what emotion there was in what is primarily, I think an intellectual pursuit and really played that. And the, the heartbreak, uh, as this character tries to figure things out uh, through the, the only way he knows how only to find that it's not really helping and that only life itself can explain life itself. Uh, I think, I think he really, um, I don't know. I think he really finds, I think he elevates that character beyond uh, Charlie Kaufman's intentions. Um, real quick. Have you heard of a, uh, the direct, the Russian director. I had to look up his name. Ilya Kirzhanovsky. He made, a, he made a movie in 2005 that's called Four, the number four. It's really good, actually. Hmm. Um, but who is making or was making a movie a lot that made me think of Synecdoche, New York, where he built essentially a section of a city in a uh, soundstage, and people's jobs were to every day show up and get into. It was like in the past. Their actors would show up, get into their period garb, and go about their day. Sometimes they'd be filmed. Sometimes they wouldn't. Some days he wouldn't even film at all, and the the town would just go on. I don't know if the movie ever got finished, but uh, this, that's an actual movie that was being made. That sounds uh, wonderful. In, in, in Russia that I hope does get finished someday and that we all get to see it. Anyway, uh, back to Philip If that Smith. movie gets made, it will wash clean all the sins of russia <laughs> yeah um okay um we can skip through i never saw doubt i did and he is really wonderful it's it, it's it's a very unshowy performance but the character yeah okay so what are the big things that we've been talking about this episode humanity uh-huh. um being able to play two things at once and make them seem like they come from one source yeah and for me what i keep coming back to is understanding the movie he's in and playing that um and in doubt we don't know if his character did the thing he's accused of only one character knows <laughs> and that's him but he can't telegraph to us what it is right. He has to act guilty without making it clear he is guilty. He has to act innocent without making it clear he's innocent. Like it's, it's so it's incredibly hard to do, but he manages to do it all while actually playing a real person with emotions and thoughts and motivations. And it's the movie is, is very well written and adequately directed uh, with wonderful performances. There are four characters and all four of the actors were nominated, rightfully so. Um, but uh, and Mer- and Meryl Streep is really great in it. But like, as is, they're all great in it. But like Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think has maybe the hardest part to play in it because if you're not careful, the character could wind up just looking wishy washy, just sort of just 
going back and forth depending on whatever scene he's in without ever seeming like a real person that's consistent. But he does, and it's a, it's a really great performance. I, I do think you should see it. I think you would actually enjoy it. Okay. It's like the character, it's like a, a human, embo- human embodiment of capturing the Freedmen. Okay, um, moving ahead. Yeah, we're going to be jumping ahead quite a bit yeah, for me. Marion Max, I don't know what that is. I've heard wonderful things about it. He does a, a voice in it. Uh, Pirate Radio was released here under the name The Boat That Rocked, I think. Oh, uh, yes. Or is it the other way around? I don't remember. Uh, I never saw it. Uh, the Inventions of, Invention of Lying, I didn't know he was in that. I didn't either, but I read, but the, uh, I read the script. <clears throat> Jack Goes Boating, he directed. Did you yeah, see that? I didn't see it. I feel, I feel bad about it. I know that he when he when he died he was in the process of of like casting another film that he was going to be directing. I don't remember the name of it though. Um The Ides of March? I did see that. I didn't see that. Yeah, and uh I will uh I'll bring this in with Moneyball. It's the same year. Um Okay. Moneyball by the way returning to Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, exactly. And so um so yeah, uh, in both cases, plays a supporting role, which is not unusual for him, obviously, but um, plays a supporting role who is not, who is there for, uh, oh, and I started to say this about uh, Freddie Miles and Talented Mr. Ripley. They're there, I think, they have, you know, real thoughts, real emotions, the whole deal, um, but they're also there to sort of set the stage and bring us into this world. Um you know, we see how different Brad Pitt is from the world of baseball as represented by the chief scout and the coach, mm-hmm. you know, and who is stoic and very set in his ways. Not a bad guy, not a yeah. dumb guy. He just knows what he, he knows the way things are done and this is how he does them. Um, and so, and he's just kind of a, he's a force to be reckoned with. Which is what, one of the reasons why I think it was important that they cast Art Howe, like cast somebody notable in that role, so that right, yeah. so that he actually so that whoever Brad Pitt was acting against, it had to be someone's like, oh geez, you can't you can't beat this guy. Um, and apparently, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, because it's the same director as Capote, Bennett Miller. Um, apparently, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, like campaign for the role of art how he wanted it he specifically wanted it when he found out this was the movie being made which is fascinating to me yeah uh, so clearly he either likes or respects art how and wanted to do him justice or something like that mm-hmm. uh but in the same way ides of march he plays uh this guy who um you know there's really only a couple characters that have any kind of uh any kind of arc everybody else is just there to short sort of show this is the world of politics this is the world of maneuvering and campaigning and that sort of thing uh and his character is trying to be an idealist and mostly is actually but is also which also makes him maybe a little just a little bit naive at times uh but he is there to kind of but he's also He's opportunistic, but he's also a realist, certainly towards the end of the film. And uh, and his scenes are a lot of fun, and he's he is able to do great things uh, with his scenes. Um, but for the most part, the nature of that character is to just show another element of the political landscape, which is the, the idealist who has been at this for a long time and maybe doesn't always – maybe he, he, tends, he tends to be in – in charge of uh, losing campaigns because he's an idealist. Right. So going back to doubt, this is him 
playing what the movie needs. Yes. Going back to yes, but I, I mean, I think I initially said that about about Freddie Miles. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's true all the way across the board. All right, let's talk about the master. All right, here we go. Uh, I think the master is like Charlie Wilson's War. I think we see things, we see v- things that he has done before, but not in this combination. We see a certain type of cadence. We see him playing what I would venture to say is older than himself. Uh, we see him playing, you know, trying to convince others and maybe even trying to convince himself of something that he knows isn't true, but maybe he thinks it. Like, that's the thing is, like, we don't know if he actually believes this. Or if he doesn't believe it, we don't know if he cynically is putting it out there because he recognizes he profits from it. We don't know if he wishes it were true. Like there's there's a lot of layers to yeah. Anytime you play like a you know like a cult leader or something like that, you know like compare this to uh, like John Hawks in Martha Marcy May Marlene, um, where it's clear like this guy gets a lot out of what he is doing and he knows it. And so he's going to do what he needs to do and he's going to put out anything he needs to put out for him to stay in power and get what he wants. Whereas this character, he still gets what he wants, but he also stands to lose a great deal as he is actually arrested at one point. And, uh, but he keeps going. And so there's a lot going on with, with the character and the character is often ridiculous at times, but he has to sell that. Like, I think I said this when we first started, ta- when we first talked about the movie as my favorite movie of, of 2012, um, when he, when he lists all the things that he is, uh-huh. he's like, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. And then he says like nuclear physicist. Yeah. And then he just says it like it's one more thing. And it's just like, that is a ridiculous thing to somebody for somebody to casually toss off. Right. Like uh, never ever sick at sea. Except, right. Yeah. But he, but he does. And, and believes it, you know, he doesn't, I, one thing that can be underneath all of these is that he does not judge his characters. Yeah. Well, I think he, he acknowledges that their actions are wrong, but he tries to find where, how they came to this conclusion that this is what they have to do. Yeah. I mean, do, what do you think he believes it, believes it, or do you think he's sort of doing a, uh, fake it till you make it type of thing. I I mean, maybe the line has already been crossed where he's been faking it for so long that he does believe it now. I think it's that. I think, I I think it's right on the, you know, right on the cusp again. Like, and by the end of the movie, maybe he has crossed the line. I think he has. Yes. Um, you know, as opposed to in that party scene where the guy just keeps questioning him and you see that actor also passed, uh, passed away. Who is, who is that? Um, I'll get his name in a second. Can it was someone of note. I remember in the moment saying, thinking like, oh, I think I've seen that guy before. Um, but the guy is challenging him and he's not playing, oh, I'm going to be found out. He's playing, I don't have an answer for this. And if I don't have an answer for this and I'm the freaking guy in charge, like maybe there is no answer. Maybe there's like, you know, speaking of as somebody like of faith and Sometimes people ask you a question that you don't know. And sometimes that can be scary because you feel like you should know. And as time has gone on, you realize like, well, there's no harm in saying you don't know. And just because you don't know doesn't mean there's not an answer. Um, But of course, he's the main guy. If anyone should have an answer, it's him. 
you know, and so I think it does throw him into a bit of a tailspin. Whereas that that's gone by the end. He's got nothing but confidence at the end. Yeah. Uh, Christopher his... Evan Welch, by the way, is the, uh, the actor's name. Okay, where have I seen I, him before? I knew him uh, because he was on a- AMC's Rubicon. Okay. Uh, but I know you didn't watch that show. Um, he's been in a lot of stuff. Okay, well, let's we can we can move on yeah, from but that. He, but he, uh, he died um, back in December. That's unfortunate. Um, but yeah, and so it's... Uh, so I feel like I do think I do think that though Joaquin Phoenix's character is definitely the lead, I do think there's a bit of an arc to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. I mean, you like look at at the very least his surroundings. Uh-huh. He starts out on a admittedly a boat and it's fairly lush and, and ostentatious and that kind of thing. But it's also mobile, has to always kind of move around a little slippery. Um as opposed to the end when he's yeah. in what can only be described as a Mr. Burns type comically large office yeah like just presenting majesty uh you know you talk we, we've talked one of the things uh, uh we've come back to again and again is playing two things at once uh and one thing that makes the master i think so appealing to people like you and me and one thing that paul uh thomas anderson's movies are great in general is that it's this uh pretty deep and heavy art film that is also really really funny oh yeah and uh, uh and philip seymour Hoffman doesn't have to like uh switch gears in between yeah. he's being the character and he's doing things the part when he's <laughs> when he's looking at joaquin phoenix through the binoculars and he's like he's going very fast good boy yes and then <laughs> it's the funniest line in the movie but it's also kind of sad oh yeah absolutely it's a very it's a it's a nice it's a strangely it's funny and poignant at the same uh-huh. time somehow but then of course it becomes just straight funny when he actually yells after him <laughs> freddy is it freddy right that's that's <laughs> yeah. it's like freddy and it's like he can't possibly hear you yeah. he's out of sight <laughs> that's why you're yelling at him uh, after him and so it's uh but but that's the thing is like even in the midst of this, where we are supposed to see this character as something of a kind of a predator and, and uh-huh. that kind of thing. But even there at the end when he is singing Slow Boat to China, uh-huh. like it's this genuinely heartfelt, sad, funny and, un- funny and uncomfortable. Well. Yeah. But it's like genuinely sad. And it's uh, and it's a really, really fascinating note to end his character on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, so I did not see a late quartet. I heard good things about it. So the last movie I saw of his was The Hunger Games Catching Fire. Uh, so so did I. Uh, oh, and um, I am looking forward to seeing um, the what you know the, the next two yeah. Hunger Games because I think he had already done most of his parts yeah. for those. From when I, is that right? When I was yeah, there? I think I read somewhere that like I think IMDb posted that like a crucial scene with his character was not filmed. But I think I, I can't imagine it being so crucial that they recast. Right. Like, cause if it's only one scene, then they can probably work around it if I had to guess. Right. But, but yeah, I'm excited to see what the character will be now that. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't want to sp- like, right. To talk much about his character, um, would be, uh, a spoiler. Yeah. But I think one thing I will mention to compare it to owning Mahoney, where I think he was, um, uh, maybe smothered a little bit by his um uh the the grooming and the costumes and yeah. stuff that he had to wear 
you'd think the Hunger Games being a movie that has such outlandish costumes would uh, be in danger of that as well. But I think quite the opposite. I think, again, without getting a lot away, uh, giving much away, there's a lot you can find about that about his character from the way that he uh, looks. Yeah, I think too much. I think it actually goes too far so? in the other direction. Like Jen and I were talking about it afterwards, which is like his attire is so not these other things that uh, it at times it almost looks like Philip Seymour Hoffman showed up in a suit. <laughs> right. Like, did he? Yeah, everybody else is like cosplaying as Nicki Minaj. Yeah. And he's in a suit. Yeah, he walked in from some award ceremony <laughs> and he's like, look, I'll be in this, but I'm not going to put on one of your dumb costumes. Um, so it was that, but also like when it's the, when it's as obvious as that visually that he's not exactly the same as everybody else. And I'll, I won't go into more detail than that. Like, right. I feel like it's, I feel like that might actually undercut the work he's doing as an actor. Cause I would say that his character, he's, he's doing a lot of the same type of work that he is in doubt where he can't play everything that the character is, but he also has to. So that when there's a big reveal, we have to be like, Oh, I see it. But I, you know, but he could also not be that if, if he were, if his character were, I have to be so careful here. I know. Um, if his character were an outsider infiltrating this world, it would make sense for him to not dress the way he does and try to blend in. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, and I think this is in his performance and his confidence, that he is he is from that world. And so his not dressing like that is a choice and is, in many ways, as ostentatious. Uh, and it's something that he can do without because he's so confident in his place in the society. Yeah. It's something he can do without, uh, fear of being found out because there's nothing to find out. Yeah. I had that. I did have that thought. And I'm not thinking in terms of his being found out. I just mean as a visual cue for the audience. Um, okay. But I still think he carries it off as a sartorial choice that his character is making out of a supreme amount of confidence man you're saying a lot of good words today sartorial (laughs) you said uh you said one i didn't even remember the other day uh uh, earlier Um, but uh but uh i mean this is a character who unlike wes bentley whom he replaced and by the way whom you were completely right about i don't remember that what did i say you said that you thought that the second movie would start with wes bentley character being dead Oh, and I disagreed. I thought Wes Bentley was going to oh. appear, and uh, no, you were completely right. He's dead. Oh, yeah, one hundred percent dead. Um, look at the berries. But that's all he did was look at the berries. Uh, we know. Okay. Um, anyway, Gary Ross is uh, not that subtle of a filmmaker. But unlike, <laughs> unlike Wes Bentley, uh, I keep forgetting um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character's name. Plutarch Heavensby. Plutarch Heavensby. Uh, is not, How did you forget that? He's Come not on. the least bit uh, cowed or nervous in the presence of President Snow. Yeah. He tells him how it is a lot of the time. Yeah. And uh, that's why I think he can pull off dressing the way he does, because he's yeah. he's the shit when he walks into any room. And, you know, that, that actually leads us into maybe a good note to end on, which is we do get more of that character. We're going to be getting more of that character in the future. I mean, just last week we talked about, now I don't remember the name of the, a most wanted man. Yeah. Uh, which I'm thrilled to see. Yeah, me too. And then uh, John Slattery directed a film. God's Pocket. God's Pocket. 
So there's more, there are a few more performances of his that we can look forward to and that I do look forward to. But in the end, it is, once that's done, it's done. And that is very unfortunate. But he does leave behind. For somebody who died at the age of 46 and didn't really do any TV, like, for example, James Gandolfini is who, that's who I feel like is a good comparison recently. I mean, sad as I was about Peter O'Toole and most recently Maximilian Schell. Yeah. Um, like, I feel like when it comes to tragedy, like a Paul Walker or a, uh, or a James Gandolfini or Philip Seymour Hoffman, like we think in terms of like, okay, well they died young. So what did they leave behind? Mm-hmm. Well, James Gandolfini did, you know, six seasons of the Sopranos. So you've got a lot of him. So for somebody who didn't do any major TV, um, for Philip Seymour Hoffman to have left behind such a body of amazing work. Yeah. Like work that will continue, it, that has inspired and will continue to inspire actors. Even the it's number, amazing. Uh, I, I think he, I mean, he was obviously great at picking projects because even the number of movies that I said on this episode, like Boogie Nights and Almost Famous Magnolia and Synecdoche, New York, that I was not a big fan of, there, um, I don't think those are movies that are uh, okay to just skip. Like, there's still right. movies that are worth watching. Maybe not Almost Famous. I don't like that one very much at all. But... Those other movies are definitely worth watching, uh, even if you end up agreeing with me that they're not that great. Yeah, it's even when the movies themselves are not this, his performances are always essential viewing for somebody who loves acting and somebody who loves film. We'll go back to Charlie Wilson's War, which we spent as much time on as anything else uh, in this episode. Again, not that great a movie. Yeah. Especially in like the career of Mike Nichols, it's... Yeah, uh, mid-rated best compared to some of the great movies he's made, but worth worth seeing just for how amazing Philip Seymour Hoffman is. Yeah, no question about it. Like I, I own the movie so I. because I want access to that performance. Yeah, and there's other things in the movie I like as well. But like, oh, Tom I, Hanks is great. Uh, yeah, you've got you, it's got a great cast. Yeah, in, in it's written fairly well. Yeah, Amy Adams has a small role. Oh yeah, uh, Sherry Appleby has a small role. Yeah. Who's on Girls? Uh, anyway, but yeah, and so it's uh so hopefully we've talked about some movies that maybe you haven't seen and you're excited to see now. And if that's, if we have accomplished that, then, uh, uh, we've done what we set out to do. And, uh, obviously there's not much, there's not much left left to say, except, uh, you know, uh, it is unfortunate that he is gone, but we always have his movies and that's not bad. Yes. Um, you can find us at battleship pretension.com. That's where you can find, this podcast and the other podcasts and all of our uh, movie reviews, including, I'm sure, a number of reviews of movies with Philip Seymour Hoffman in them, right? Probably, Someone yes. reviewed The Master uh, for our website. Uh, I don't remember who, but I'm pretty sure someone did. I don't know, but I, I, I reviewed uh, Latest Hunger Games. Oh, yeah. There's that. Um, so check that out at BattleshipPretension.com. Uh, email us, David at BattleshipPretension.com or Tyler at BattleshipPretension.com. Follow me on Twitter at The Pretension. Follow Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Tyler, what's going on over there? Well, uh, the most recent episode, by the time this posts, uh, the most recent episode will be a discussion that you and I had years ago but it's and you recorded one... it secretly and now you're releasing it as a podcast. Yeah. And I'm just saying, I'm just <laughs> telling Josh, like, just say what David said and it'll, <laughs> it'll be fine. Um, so you recorded it, but instead of playing the audio, you're recreating it. Yeah. Josh. Yeah. 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 No, my audio stays the same. I'm just, you know, oh, wow. we're doing some ADR okay. here. Uh, 
And so, um, but you and I recorded years ago about separating the art from the artist. All right. Uh, in Christian circles, there is something a little bit more deep about that. There are a number of people, including my mom, uh, that have talked about, oh, I don't want to see any movies by blank because blank. Now, for mm-hmm. a long time, it was Woody Allen, who has been recently in the news again. And uh, so we're going to be talking about Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, Mel Gibson. But then the flip side, we also will be talking about a number of Christian films that Christians feel the need to see solely because they are Christian. So it's like the idea of not seeing a movie that might be great because the person behind it is maybe not a great person or has made some bad choices. And then talking about seeing a movie that is terrible because you are philosophically in sympathy with the person that made it. Uh, so that's what we're exploring this week, and I'm excited to have the discussion. I will be having it in about 15 minutes. All right. Um, my other podcast is the weekly television show, Hey, Watch This. It's not on television. It's a podcast about television. It's called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. The Paul of that title is none other than King of, T- King of TV. I have so much trouble saying King of TV. King of TV, Paul Goebel. Uh, so you can find that at battleshipretention.com. This week we'll be talking about uh, ABC's The Middle, and we'll be talking about American Idol, which I have not watched since Taylor Hicks won, which is nothing. <laughs> it was not like I was like, Taylor Hicks. <laughs> I'm never watching this again. Uh, I think I actually voted for Taylor Hicks. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but that was the last time I watched. So it was like 2006. There's all kinds of twist endings here in this episode because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that you ever watched... Uh, American Idol, or were well, I invested in in anything that happened there? Uh, yeah, I voted for Taylor Hicks. I think maybe Kelly Pickler. No, I think <laughs> I voted for Kelly Pickler, but that was the same season. Uh, also, you can find me on the On the Page podcast uh, this week. With uh, if you're wondering why I out of nowhere mentioned that Sherry Appleby was in Charlie Wilson's Awards, because I was just thinking about it because I just produced an episode of On the Page with Sherry Appleby. Oh. Um, uh, talk uh, and the creator of Sherry Appleby's former um, CW uh, show Life Unexpected. Uh, it was a really good conversation, so you can find that. And then I'll be back on on the page very soon to talk about um, the original and adapted screenplay nominees. Oh, nice! Uh, this year's Oscars. So uh, check out on the page. Check out Hey, watch this. Check out BattleshipPretension.com. Check out at the Pretension and at More Lessons. And thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 